Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray here to introduce an episode with a difference, it must be said, because, well, it's the episode that was, even though it eventually wasn't. Yes, folks, every now and then the pod gods frown upon one and remind one that no matter how long one might have been doing this stuff, there's always room to be brought down a peg or two. Myself and Adrian Logue had a fascinating and all-encompassing chat with former touring pro turned TV commentator Ewan Porter this week. But unfortunately, the only three people who will ever know that is us, because the recording of that discussion now resides in the world of half-finished sentences and lost faxes. Where do they go? Now, I take full responsibility for this as the person in charge of the recording, and I can only apologise to Ewan, who was extremely generous with his time. Of course, we will have Ewan back in the next week or so, but that doesn't solve the problem of what to do about episode 32. For that... Adrian Logue is the man with the plan. Once he'd finished lambasting me for buggering up this week's recording, he had what can only be described as a genius idea. In the coming weeks, the second instalment of the Good Good Book Club will be recorded with special guest host Derek Duncan alongside Logue and reigning US mid-amateur champion Lucas Michel. The three of them will break down Mark Frost's The Match, a brilliant tale about one of the most famous golf matches ever played when Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson took on superstar amateurs of the day Harvey Ward and Ken Venturi at the revered Cypress Point Golf Course. Now, it's a superbly written tale which captures brilliantly one of the great and historical moments in golf's history. If you've not read the book, grab a copy and get cracking because this recording will be happening in the next few weeks. But in an effort to whet your appetite and to cover up for my incompetence this week, We're going back to the future on episode 32 with the book club episode that really started it all. It's almost exactly two years to the day since we released the most listened to episode in the history of the I Seek Golf podcast, a review of Alistair McKenzie's Spirit of St Andrews with Mike Clayton. Now, this is easily the worst quality audio episode that I have personally ever produced. Ironically, it is also easily among the very best in terms of content. It's a long one, but most who've listened agree it's worth every minute because apart from the brilliance of the book, it is Mike Clayton at his engaging best. Now, while you're listening and bemoaning my lack of audio skills, both for buggering up episode 32 and for the poor audio quality of Mike Clayton, do yourself a favour and surf over to the very competent and always working smoothly website of our show and network sponsor, thegolfsociety.com.au, an online concept store stocking the very best brands in apparel, shoes and accessories. They also offer Talking Golf listeners a special discount off their first order simply by logging in to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talking golf. And remember, just the one G in talking golf does the heavy lifting for both talking and golf. Talking golf, one G. It's a creeper. You'll get it. You'll find Cross and Calvin Klein, among others, shoes from G4, Adidas, Nike, and more, and everything from belts to golf gloves from the most respected brands in the business. That's thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talking golf. In the meantime, enjoy Mike Clayton and the spirit of St. Andrews. Uh, I suppose we'll come to you first, Mike Clayton, because I think this book has been particularly influential for you. I reckon I've heard you quote this book a thousand times in various uh, various guises. Uh, when did you first come across it? What were your first memories of when you first read it? What your reaction to it was? Oh, I think I first... I remember Laura Norman, Greg's first wife, at the Open 
at St Andrews, maybe in ninety one of the ones he I was going to say one of the ones he messed up. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it wasn't at St Andrews. It was an open somewhere, and she was looking for a present for him. I said, "Buy this new book. It's just it's amazing." So he came to me the next day and said, I, "I'd sat up all night reading that book. It's incredible." So that was my first memory of. But I'd, I'd found it before that, obviously, and read it. And I think it's the most, it's the best golf book ever written. And I think it's the most important golf book ever written because when, when I reread it last night, you realise it's, it's more relevant now than it was when he wrote it. Because all the problems that the game has now, the answers are in this book. Mm. Yeah. So that's why it's so important. And that's a big statement to make the most important. You've read some golf books, haven't you? Yeah, I have. <laughs> no, I have. And I've read this over and over. Not, I mean, I've just, you can pick it up on any page. And it's one of those books where you can pick it up on any page and find something interesting and yeah. relevant to the game and how he transformed the game and why he thought it was great. You know, it's potential for, you know, he talks about golf courses being great assets for a nation. Mm-hmm. And some people might think that's exaggerated, but you look at the, you know, the amount of money that goes into golf tourism and how important golf is to to Melbourne, for example. How many people come to Melbourne to play golf or go to Bumbergle or... World Cup this year, President's Cup this year, yeah. multi-million dollar ventures, both of them. So golf is important, good architect's important. And, and, and he talks about you know giving up being a doctor to, to pursue the pursuit of architecture because... He thought the health and happiness of the community was much more. He was much more liable to have a positive effect on that by designing good golf courses than he was sitting in a surgery giving people medicine for their for their ailments. Yeah. So he kind of got the whole picture of. Yeah. I think what close touch on what's one of the things that struck me, Adrian, is that the way Mackenzie we, we think of golf in all these compartments. There's golf course architecture. There's the business of golf. There's professional golf. There's a, he ties it all together in a way that I think Clates does too, which is partly probably because of the influence of the book why the golf architecture is an important thread to all the other elements of golf and why each of them is also important to the architecture. So what was your take when yeah. you sort of first read? Yeah, he does. Look, I think one of the takeaways from this is that Alistair McKenzie was a golf nut. And uh, while you, one, you think that while he was practising medicine and certainly while he was doing the camouflage thing in the army, he was thinking in the back of his mind about how some of this would apply to golf. And and as Clayt said, he used to send people away from the doctor's office with a prescription to play golf and he'd never see them again. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, also, uh, he, I mean, he goes into some stuff about golf instruction here, which is um, really kind of not something you associate with Alistair McKenzie. But to me, it just speaks to the fact that he was a golf nut yeah. and that he approached architecture with the eye of a golf nut. And uh, he... he tried to put himself in the position of a player, in, in the position of every man, and um, was making decisions out in the course that were, I think he says here, making decisions that are the most good for the most people. Gross. Um, for the greatest number. For the right. greatest number, yeah. And and that, I think, comes from just immersing yourself in golf um, for your entire life. It's a lifetime of being immersed in golf. A couple of things that stood out to me, I, said, I didn't expect Alistair McKenzie to inject humour into the book there's all these little anecdotes oh, a bunch of little jokes and yeah, stories that he's picked up along the way which yeah. really sort of breaks up the other thing that really stuck out to me was how much credit he gives others for work that's credited yeah. to him he's extremely generous isn't he to Especially other Robert Hunter. people who work with him you know his competitors um, constantly saying how much good work they've done yeah um, 
extraordinary. So you might have got the motivation, but perhaps that altruistic element in his course. It doesn't mention Alex Russell at all. No. <laughs> I don't think Alex Russell or Lord Morecambe's get a single mention. Well, we'll get to it, but yeah. given how, you know, as Tom Doak wrote in his book about you know, the visit that transformed a continent, certainly the golf in Australia, he gives it a paragraph, two, maybe, because he was only here for three months. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he doesn't give himself any credit or, or write about Ron. The sad thing is he never saw Ron Melbourne. I mean, you know, yeah. this is arguably the best course in the world. He never saw it. He just came here and said, do this and left and left it to Russell and Morecambe to clean it up. And yeah, you, you wish he'd kind of seen that golf course. I mean, you wish he'd lived long enough to get paid by Augusta too, probably. Yeah, that would have been a yeah, he, uh, he 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 gives pretty short shrift to his time in Australia. Well, in fact, he, sorry, go ahead. He spends more time slaughtering golf in New in Zealand. Zealand. In New Zealand, yeah, yeah. Golf, golf in New Zealand is dead. In fact, it's never been alive. Yeah. And it was true until the very recent time passed yeah. when yeah, Julian Robinson came down and built some courses in Tarity, and you know, they've done some. Well, like, like, with Parapara. Para 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 well, but that was the one. Yeah, well, the one golf course they had between there and. Cape Kidnappers, yeah. really. I mean, it was a, he was right about New Zealand. Yeah. And we, we played the New Zealand Open for years when a guy called Roy Pullman, who John Evans will be listening to this. I was going to say, John Evans <laughs> will have some responses to this part of the He'll know Roy Pullman, but you know, Roy had gone to the US Open every year and decided that was the way golf should be set up. And so you'd go to the New Zealand Open every year and Mackenzie would have abhorred the narrow fairways and long rough and you know, it, was, it was hopeless. But you know, no, one, no one had paid any attention to it. Well, the problem was they didn't find this book until after Roy Pullman had stopped setting up the New Zealand yes, Open. Um, which actually, I just wanted to come down that quickly, Coach, before we get into sort of the, some of the, the actual chapters in the book. There's an obituary at the back of the book that says, quite blatantly, at the time of his death, Mackenzie was working on a book called The Spirit of St Andrews. Hmm. And yet it wasn't published for 60 years after. And it, you know, they found the tr- manuscript in a drawer and published it, I think, in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. What happened there? Have you got any idea what, why it wasn't? Well, now, I should know that the book on Robert Trent Jones goes into how the rumour that he actually had the co- a copy of the manuscript for years and never gave it to anyone, never showed it to anyone. I might be... Is, um, Robert Trent Jones seen... Unfairly maligning the, the, the old man. But yeah, but he apparently had a copy of it and mm-hmm. just kept it to himself. I love that theory. Yeah. That's a great yeah. thing. So that's actually would be a good book. We don't want to beat architecture books to death yeah. on this podcast, but <laughs> there's a terrific book on Jones's old man's life in golf course design. Starting off, starting off working with Stanley Thompson. Yeah, that's right. yeah, so, yeah. But the story is that the family found the manuscript in a box of papers in the, and published it, sadly, 50 years after it should have been published because we might have stopped a lot of the problems with the game if people had read. Mm. I, I suspect it might have had something to do with the Great Depression as well. Like there just wasn't an appetite for building golf courses around about the time publishing books. And publishing books yeah. and whatever. But, and publishing but you books, can yeah. imagine, you know, he died suddenly, he was 64, and yep. he probably Two assumed weeks. he was going to live for a while. And yeah. it was this thing just got shoved in the, and no one, yeah. you know, here it was. Yeah. I mean, uh, the good thing is that someone actually found it. I mean, if it had mm. never been found it, yeah. all we would have had was the original well, yeah. golf architecture, which was... Including the introduction as well uh, by Bobby Jones. Yeah. yeah. That must have been there, right right there with it. Well, he must have been close to... If you bothered to have an introduction... You don't do that until last, do you? You don't say to Bobby Jones before you write a book, yeah. would you mind writing an introduction? No. No. When you're getting near the end, you say, I'm about to do this book, would you mind writing it? So he must no, have no. been very, very close. And as you say, you wonder how golf might look yeah. different 
and he lived till 1935 and the book went published well, and he'd done a tour talking yeah, about it. Maybe, but this has been out for 22 years and who's paying attention to it now? Well, I was just going to ask you this. Do you think it has had an impact? We're in this second golden age, quote-unquote, people like to talk about. We've seen a lot of men we just watched Trinity Forest, which was a fascinating display of you know, professional yeah. golf at that course. Does all of that happen? Do we get Core, Crenshaw, Doak, yourselves? Do we get all that without this book, That Has it played a role or I not? I think you get it without the book, but, you know... Um you don't get it without his courses. So, so you, you don't think you get Trinity Forest without Royal Melbourne mm-hmm. or St Andrews because, you know, whilst people, the Trent Jones in that era of architects went off in a different direction, it was Bill Corr who, and he, Bill would be too modest to say, but um, you know, it was Bill Corr who dragged everyone back to, by building Sands, he was dragged everyone back to the principles that he was talking about and here about fun and bouncing the ball up and width and space and you go to Trinity Forest last week and Matt Kuchar has his reaction because he completely doesn't get it or didn't get it. Which is but, bizarre, so by the way, played great down here at Royal Melbourne two weeks yeah, ago. Two years run, ago, yeah. Run up play, to play great at Birkdale yeah. and just doesn't get it at yeah. Trinity Forest. It's extraordinary. Or maybe just sit that laid up at the right on that par five and then wedge across the green and kind of hump with it. But um, yeah, it was, you know, the Trinity Forest was a throwback to Royal Melbourne. I think if Mackenzie had gone there, he would have approved of that style of golf. He would have abhorred the fact that it was 7,300 yards and they shot 20 under par in it. He would have said, well, what happened here? But, um, you know, there's so much in about, you know, the, the stupid reverence for the colour green, yeah. for the, yeah. and the role of committees, the, the controlling the ball. Um, he speaks so bluntly about all that too, doesn't he? In this book, and yeah. he says exactly the same things that you hear people saying today. Not listening to not listening to pros about the way golf could you? Yeah. But, you know, he would say, well, what, "Why would you care about what Matt Kuchar thinks? He's not yeah. about golf. He's just yeah. a good player." Yeah. 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 Who's that? J H Taylor. He really ripped oh, into yeah. J H. Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's like refreshing to know there was a problem with signature designs back then. Yeah, that's right. So. You know, Bill Corr could have written this book or Tom Doak could write this book yeah. now word for word and change a few lines in it and just change a few names and you know rub out Walter Hagen and put in Seriano Ballesteros and yeah. you know, you know it's, so um, yes yeah, so going back to the point of who's reading it now I assume Mike Davis has read it I would hope Martin Slumbers has read it because Mackenzie's map's above his wall in the office so you, you would hope they'll reading this and paying attention to what he's saying. It feels like power, don't you think? Don't you feel in the last couple of years it oh, feels like there's this away from the book, but it does, but there's moves at that top level they yeah. want to do something about the way Yeah, well I think they're going to do something about it. Yeah. But you know, he talks about the importance of wooden club play and yeah. variety and you know, he would abhor the pitch and putt yeah. nature of the game on the, at the highest level. Yeah. I mean I think he would you know, approve of. I think the, the game's fine in the middle level. Yeah. You know, the average players are still the game is the game's the same as it's always been. Really, he would have smirked at uh, Aaron Wise missing the green from fifty yards on Saturday, having driven at four hundred yards yeah. down yeah. there in Trinity Forest, and not being He would have had a smirk at that. You know, the pitch shot, uh, which he was. There's a, he, he speaks very strongly against the pitch shot. It's boring and it's dull and it's the, um, yeah, the monotonous, yeah, vulgar pitch. pitch. Yeah. It, it's, it's an ugly shot. You know, he's yeah. in the air, very much about the ground game. But Trinity Forest was interesting last week and how much interest, at least in our little world, it, world it brought yeah. out and how many people commented on it. And, yeah. you know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not wasn't the TPC at Southlands where they're going to a Memphis in a few weeks where the, you know, the golf course won't scrape together one single word of attention or, you know, who cares, just a place to play golf. 
Yeah. As he would say, a place to stock the ball around. Execute golf swings. Yeah. Yeah. So the book's put into seven chapters. Let's see what we'll go through. There's a couple that I don't think we'll touch on. The Green Kit. There's interesting stuff in the Green Kit. The Green Kit? I thought, no, we won't talk much about the Green Kit. But there's some great stuff in that Green Kit. made a lot of notes. There's some really good stuff in that. Little points that are really important in that. Strapping Rob just skipped over Green Kit. We skipped over Green No, we're not going to skip over Green I didn't skip over it, but I sort of got halfway through and thought, we've really got about an hour to play with. This puts it into about four hours. So let's. All right, we'll have a little bit about the Green Kit. There's probably three chapters that are really where most of the meat is the evolution of golf, the opening chapter. General principles, which is the third principle, which we'll talk about that. Uh, ideal holes of golf courses, and what's the and you got green kit and some thoughts on golf. So he does an instruction thoughts on golf chapter, which yeah, the thoughts on golf is great. Well, let's start with chapter one. So the evolution of golf. Um, I suppose the very opening line is about seaside courses being yep. ruined by uses of fertilizer and bad mowing practices. But it's interesting to me, place that the starting point for Mackenzie seems to be about conditioning. Am I off on a tangent there? The very first thing you're talking about is golf course conditioning, really, isn't it? He has it in for clover. Probably that's a, that's a big well, thing. Yeah, yeah. Agricultural weeds. Yeah. 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 So I, I found that interesting. You know, the first one wasn't about, you know, the, of course, the theme of the, the whole book, and it starts with is that St Andrews is the mecca for all things it's golf. Ideal. Look to St Andrews because yeah. all of the answers about what makes for interesting golf can be found at the old course. Yeah. Well, I think it's also that he, he makes the point that Lynx land is the ideal grounds for golf. Yep. And this book is really about how to reproduce the experience of playing on Lynx land in inland courses. Yeah, like, I think that's the, that's the context, that's the historical context of the book, was that golf had become very popular and it was expanding into the States. Mm. And he personally had gone to live in the States and was being commissioned to build a lot of golf courses. And he wasn't being given Lynx land to build, a, to build the courses on. And so he thought to himself, okay, how can I recreate the experience of playing the St. Andrews yeah. on inland courses? And, and that's really what this book's all about. And that's why it's still relevant today is because most of the golf we play isn't on true Lynx land. No. Um, and that's why I think he goes and focuses on the agronomy so much because mm, he's, he's looking to reproduce the ground conditions that you have with Lynx land. This is the paragraph that's taken out. It's probably about the sixth or seventh sentence in the book. Now, alas, most of these old seaside courses have been ruined by well-intentioned but injudicious efforts of their green committees to improve on nature. The rabbits have been killed off, alkaline fertilisers fit only for agriculture have been used, with the result that the sparse dwarf velvety turf has disappeared and is now replaced by plants with agricultural weeds, etc., etc. I just found it interesting that that was sort of the first premise of the book was, I suppose it speaks to the importance of conditions, an argument you must have all the time. We're here at Metropolitan Golf Club, one of the best-conditioned golf courses in the world. Condition Mm. alone doesn't make a good golf course, does it? No, but there's a difference between perfect fairways, perfect, perfect fairways, perfect turf, and conditions that are perfect for golf. I mean, these fairways here at Metropolitan, every lie I've had for the last 28 years has been exactly the same. And I don't, I don't. He goes into that later in the book where, you know, how would you, how do you ever appreciate a good lie if you never have a bad one? And how can you differentiate players yeah. who are capable of yeah. playing out of a bad so, one? So whilst these are perfect fairways, the fairways at Barnbugle. Whilst they're not perfect, they're perfect for golf. That they're much, I would argue, much better suited to golf than these fellows, which are like playing on carpets. Bamboogle's got every lie you've got to consider because it's a slightly, it's a slight variant on the other, and, it, and it's plus it's you know, he talks about velvety turf. I mean, there is no better turf than fescue, and the only place where we had fescue fellows in 
Australia's Bart Burgle and Kate Wickham. Yeah. So you've talked about it before, the interaction between club, ball and turf. And ground, yeah. There's, there's like yeah. nothing there's else. Not nothing, yeah. 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 So yeah. I suspect the better the player you are, the more aware of yeah. that you are as you play. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's just the thrill of the contact between, you know, you, you can hit nice shots here on this course that feel, but they don't feel like they feel at Bart Burgle because there's the added element of the divot. You know, the modern Mel- Melbourne Coochgrass fellows, there's no such thing as a divot. You know, take a divot out of the ground. It's just because it's like a map, literally. But yeah. it so, so I'm not sure. I think if he came down and played here or Kingston Heath or Victoria or any other of these beautifully conditioned courses and went to Barnboogle, he would, or, or Kate Wickham, he would much appreciate, would much more appreciate the, the quality of the striker off the fescue. That probably speaks to the second point I'd make. I'll come to what you guys picked from the first chapter in a moment. Um, he talks about St Andrews, and it's clear that themes with the book is that St Andrews is the one to look at. Each hole was an adventure, he says. I think that speaks to what you're talking about there in a way, doesn't it? When he talks about bad lines, he talks about the joy of no longer having the opportunity to hit these amazing shots out of bad lines. The joy of that. Hmm. Was we tend to look at it and go, oh, I've got a bad lie. How, I, I, a, a, in a divot in the middle of the fairway, that's unfair. It's a complete opposite way of thinking, isn't it? It's yeah. an adventure. Yeah. Well, and it goes to, you know, bunkers. I mean, the complaints, the modern complaints about bunkers now, where every lie's got to be flat and consistent. And, you know, where's the adventure in sand play? I mean, no one, because it's a difficult shot to play, if you've, well, if you've got a bad technique, it's impossible. If you've got a good technique, it's easy to get out of a bunker. But you know the, the adventure of the bunker is completely lost on the modern player who thinks that bunkers should be consistent and fair and predictable, and every shot should be flat and nothing should be ever plugged or too wet or too dry. Or I mean, he, he would abhor the complaints that modern players make about bunkers. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, there are a couple of notes on this. I'm sure you both got notes about chapter one. Adrian, we haven't heard enough from you yet. What did you? Uh, what were the points you sort of found in chapter one in particular? And some readings have been to you, little voice, let's hear it. <laughs> well, I, I did like that he'd spent so long analysing the old course. And I, I hadn't realised actually that he was consulting architect on the old course, mm. um, but that he spent a year doing reproducing, um, well, sorry, you know, creating a, a map of the old course. Uh, I assume that's the map you're referring to. That's the yeah. big map. It's the famous yeah. map, yeah, yeah. behind the, the hangs behind the secretary's office. So yeah. you can buy it online, I think. You can buy it for yeah. five, five quid in the shop at two hundred. Yeah. yeah, the beautiful maps. And, and to hear that from him and talk about the fact that he still felt he had a lifetime of learning to do from, from the old course and that, uh, you know, he'd studied it in such detail to create that map, but then he could, you know, still learn things every time he went and played it. Um, I, I thought that was, that was fascinating. Uh, it's really fitting that the book starts off talking about the old course and the characteristics of golf on the old course and how... Uh, you know how fairness plays into it, or you know how unfairness plays into it, um, because th- those those are the sort of criteria that he's asking you to judge other courses by throughout the rest of the book. So I, I think this first ch- chapter for me really sets out that criteria, um, and he even goes on to mention that somebody um, was doing some rankings of courses. Oh, Joshua Crane, yeah, yeah. T- turn on his head, yeah, he, he, and he's. Criteria was all wrong because he ended up with the old course at the bottom of his list, and he said, "Well, obviously, you know, you just turn that upside down, and you've got it all right then." But we're still trying to we're still trying to apply mathematical yeah. formulas to to measure golf courses. Yeah, and oh, he, system and he abhors the, the ranking system, formulas. and you know, how can you apply a formula? To, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So for Shot me, values. that's that's the interesting thing, and and I think for the for the person looking to get an education on golf course architecture. 
that's the sort of thing you take away from this book. And it was very similar with the Jeff Shackelford Grounds for Golf, that it's a course that uh, it's a book that gives you the criteria that you can use yourself to look go out and look for these features in a golf course and, and evaluate a golf course for yourself. Yeah. Um, which is something that's always been a it's been a search for me is to sort of ask myself, you know, what is it about that place that I enjoyed and what is it that I why didn't I enjoy it or and uh, you know I'm starting to find the answers in these sort of books. And so it's it's good for your golf. Right? That's right. interest is actually good for your right. golf, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So, Clates. Chapter one. Well, he tells a couple of funny stories. The story about the, the golf pro, Andrew Cacoli, who went to the doctor, who told him to give up whiskey. And he walked out of the surgery and the doctor said, you've forgotten to pay me, so I'm not taking your advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. It didn't yeah. really have... It, like, there's a lot of stories in there that don't really have anything to do with the point he was just making no. in the text, but they're still yeah. great stories. Well, the story about his map, he was trying to find a bunker, for the, a name for the bunker next to Hell Bunker. Yeah. And he, he couldn't find anyone who could tell him the name of it. One of the kids said, oh, it's called Pulpit. Yeah. He said, why is it called Pulpit? He said, well, c- because you can see hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> that was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I love those little stories. I just didn't expect that from Why didn't I? Why, why was my view of McKinsey of the sort of the down man place? Is that my fault? Why misread, misread things over the years? I just... Well, because I guess he was Scottish, so... Yeah. Probably because we know Huggy too well. We just <laughs> assume all Scots are like Huggy, but... <laughs> photos of him look pretty down. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just, yeah. I was, it was unexpected for me. It was the humour, the little humorous passages yeah. in the book. Yeah. Right. Was he belligerent? I think he was probably belligerent. I don't think there's any doubt. Well, the extraordinary thing is, was a sort of commentary on his generosity towards other men. At the same time, funny enough, you remind me a bit in this way, his, his views are so strong on what he's certain about. Mm. Yeah, that he is bombastic almost yeah. in his approach. He simply will not, um, you know, countenance an opinion that yeah. he has come to the conclusion after me that he's wrong. And so he's sort of two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Extremely generous, but absolutely will not have in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, he doesn't agree with it. Yeah, he's making some pretty strong assumptions that he's right about the way he thinks, and and it's hard to argue that. I mean, how can you argue with what he thinks? I mean, I think yeah. he's. Clearly, he had a right. I think. I mean, yeah, I you know, you would, you would go to, you know, people who set up the normal PGA Tour course with thirty yard wide fairways. Now would say, well, you can't give these guys fifty yard wide fairways because they'll. And last week, in a way, you, know, you don't want last week at Trinity Forest. I remember saying, this, you can't have this course judged by what people score on it. No. You can't say. Low score, bad course. Well, that's an important point that he makes later yeah. on, doesn't he? In fact, in fact well, he, well, he yeah, low, course, low score, probably good course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah in fact, when he, the average score is quite high. He talks about altering a course and the record went from 74 to 68. And so yeah. well, that's a good thing. He lengthened it yeah. as well and it's still yeah. going to that. Yeah. I've got the quote right here because I actually made a note of it. I want to read it. Yeah. I think it's important because in the ongoing debate that we find ourselves involved in soft quotes about distance and all those sorts of other things, um, People's immediate reaction is to point to scoring, isn't it? I must Which is such 30, a distraction. 30 separate people say to me, yeah, but the scoring hasn't gone up, so everything must be okay. And, and, and he points out here, I'm almost bound with you, he'll be flicking through the book here. Okay, I cannot see how it is possible to fix the power of a golf course according to the length of the holes. I once lengthened a course over 1,000 yards and the record was reduced by six strokes. The original course had small blind greens and many of the fairways were on a pronounced hill slope bordered by long grass. When the course was lengthened, the greens enlarged and made visible, the long grass eliminated and the hill climbing diminished, the record was reduced from 74 to 68. Incidentally, as I've suggested before, it is no criterion of a good course that the record is high. And that sums up neatly, doesn't it, the point that you... 
scoring and how the golf courses play are two totally unrelated which was which was the criticism, the bashing that Aaron Hills got last year. Someone mm. you know, Kepka won the US Open with what he shoot fifteen hundred or twelve hundred yes. or something. Well, well, therefore, the course is no good. Well, it's yeah. a wide course with no wind. If the wind had blown, it was a part seventy-two planes. Yeah, make it a part seventy like they do most years. Yeah. So, <laughs> if someone yeah. shoots that far under par in the US Open, therefore the course is no good. Well, yeah. well, it's not a traditional US Open test where you shoot seven over par because you're playing down blindingly narrow fairways bordered by long grass that. You, you can understand the thought process, can't you? But it doesn't take much scratching at the surface of that no. argument to reveal yeah. why it, it doesn't make any no. sense because it no. reveals nothing about how yeah. golf course play, no. which is what golf exactly right. yeah. uh, is exactly about. So that's a, sort of an important uh, thing to make. In the Victorian era, 50 years ago, almost new, almost all new golf courses were planned by professionals who were incidentally amazingly bad. <laughs> yeah, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh, there's Just on that US Open thing, there's the, the I think the paragraph that, was key to the whole Brandall Chambly uh, uh-huh. discussion, discussion. Um, about the US Open setups and, and growing the rough because it deals very specifically with growing the rough in and up at the distance beyond where the normal hazards are to, to capture these long hitters. Mm-hmm. And uh, the paragraph, um, in fact, I, you know, Chambly used this paragraph. As an argument, well, yes, yeah, right. He used it as an argument in his favour because he's saying, "See, modern golf is a reaction to um, Alistair McKenzie's principles of making it all fun, and you make things fun by mowing all the rough down and and widening everything." Um, so, anyway, the the paragraph reference here is Charles Ambrose, an able golfer, writer, artist, and critic, has recently been advocating that the proper way to limit the flight of the golf ball is to penalise everyone who drives over a certain distance leaving rough grass so as to make them drive into a bottleneck. And it goes on, but he, he has a very good point here that, you know, that's just, that's just not the way to do it at all. In fact, you should give them a little bit more scope um, mm. to, to get themselves into trouble. You know, uh, well, and, and give them more scope to, to find a good angle class. One of the things I found interesting in here was one of the things McKenzie suggests is that, in fact, for the longer hitter at the longer distance... Give him more room to hit to. Mm, yeah. Reward him for his ability to yeah. hit a bit longer and allow for a little less accuracy yeah. um, for having the skill and the courage to take that shot yeah. on, which is the complete opposite. It's of the what opposite, yeah. yeah. An intuitive reaction might be. Yeah. You can understand why. Well, I've hit it so far these days. Well, let's make the courses longer. So, but that, it just doesn't work, does it? It, yeah. it, 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 it loses in the, in the translation. Well, same with putting a bunker. He, he comments on some, some committee, I think it was, that put a bunker way out in the rough. Um, and he's going, why have you done that? Why is it way out <laughs> to the side there? And well, it has to capture the really big slice. Well, as well, if the man who slices out there doesn't have enough problems. That's right. You should pity that guy. That's right. So there's a good player here who for years insisted there should be a bunker on the right side of the 15th fairway here, which is a hole where dog leg left, bunker on the inside corner. If you go to the right side of the fairway, it's a brutally difficult shot. And he wanted to put a bunker out there because he only... Only if a bad drives go to the right, but he wanted to put that guy in a bunker. Completely, he's a good player. Completely missed the point that his bunker was at the front of the green. If you go out there, you have to deal with a bunker at the front of the green. But leave the give the bad player room to flare it out there and bump it up short and chip it on. Chip it on yeah. But you know, the, the idea, the concept of putting a bunker to capture a bad shot is, which is the essence of the, one of the one of the principles of this book is that you don't put bunkers and hazards out to catch bad shots. You put them out to catch good shots, yeah. almost good shots. This is the notion, is it not, of crime and punishment 
in golf as opposed to risk and reward. I know you've got a different yeah. uh, view about risk and rewards and what most well, of the shades of, the shades of grey. The shades yeah. of grey. But this notion that golf should be a game of crime and punishment. And a player who commits the crime of a poor shot needs to be punished for hitting that poor shot as opposed to being given away to be able to recover from that poor yeah. shot uh, at the cost of a stroke. But he talks about the futility. He talks about cricket and the futility of trying to capture every bad shot. He said you need 100 fielders to get every bad mm-hmm. shot. Same as golf. You can, in both sports, you can't try and capture every bad shot. It's not the point of it. So, yeah. You know. yeah. It's really quite deep stuff. When you think about some of the things he says, it's a very deep, it really is the essence of golf and makes you think about the game in a much different way to what most of us I mean, intuitively react to golf, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's very thoughtful and thought-provoking. Um, the things that McKenzie but the game does. the game hasn't changed the, the, game has, exactly. the game hasn't changed the way people think about it's changed the way equipment's changed it and, and the professional tools changed it but the game yeah. it's changed a form of it but it hasn't game itself hasn't changed the Questions essence of asks. the essence of what makes it interesting hasn't changed yeah, yeah. Remember, we'll get into the stuff about match play versus yeah, not at this rate we won't <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's that's one of the fundamental things okay. is, chapter one let's, uh, yeah. I'm done with chapter one who's got Anything else for chapter one? Uh, one learns from bitter experience how difficult it is to escape hostile criticism when one makes a whole of the adventurous type, which is true. Of any, I mean, any, any great. I mean, Bill Corded, the you know the fourteenth hole at Bandon Trails was off. You know, our thirteenth green at the Lakes. I mean, you know, the, the fifth hole last week at Trinity Forest. I mean, there were Dokes eight. You know, the eighth hole at Barnbugle. I'm sure they could, they would all point to. Modern archers would all point to holes they think are some of their best holes. The second at Talking Stick, which Bill Cole told me, he said some people think it's the best hole they've ever played, and some people think it's the worst. So uh, he knows you've got to go right then. So it's you know it's um he talks about making holes of a, a adventurous spirit, but understands that they'll be criticised. And, and one of his disappointments at Cypress Point was there was no criticism of it. Yeah. He's worried. I've yeah. done something wrong because yeah. no one's criticising it. Yeah. And he came to the conclusion it was just the beauty of the place that. Which is a fairly reasonable conclusion. Yeah. I don't even see photos of it, but my goodness, it looks spectacular. People was, yeah, it's an amazing place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, one last thing from, for me from uh, Chapter 1. Uh, just talking about the finishing of a golf course. And uh, he, he says the, the featuring, bunkering, drainage, and even some of the clearing of the fairways can be postponed to a future date. The important thing is that the skeleton of the course should be right. It can be clothed in future years. Which, and I, I think it's a wonderful thing, which in most, well, not most, but a lot of the time in the modern day, we see that completely reversed, um, where there's this obsession with all the finishing touches. I, I like a good path. I think <laughs> you could go straight to, um, you know, tidying up paths and, and course furniture and that sort of stuff. But uh uh, he's not really talking about that with this statement, but um, just the bones of a course, getting that right, um, and then worrying about the finishing touches. And it really is something that goes to the enjoyment of a course. I think when you when you walk off, uh, you know, a woodlands, you realise that's that's a really great golf experience. But there's twigs and leaves and stuff lying all over the place. You can go to some other places, uh, even in Melbourne, where everything's pristine, but it's just not quite as good a golf experience as what you've had at like a Woodlands. Later on in the book, he talks about how, he tells a story about how, you know, a friend who was a lawyer who was doing a case and his lawyer friend said to him, you know, you have to get up and make this same closing speech three times in three different ways and he just keeeps saying it. Mm. Mackenzie keeps saying it in this book. That theme will come up again yep. two or three chapters mm. time when he talks about 
the economics of building a golf course is that the important thing is to get the greens right and dress it all later, which is the exact opposite of what we do these days, isn't it? People expect a finished product turned out. Trinity Forest is a great example. I let the caddies play it last year. Mm. It was virtually brand new because it wasn't ready to be played. They all went away and said it's terrible. None of the players are going to want to play it. Um, yeah, but it's expected to be finished. Yeah, when I, mean, I played there last year, it was fine. I mean, yeah, it's just... Mm. Yeah. yeah, Trinity Forest was a... I'm glad it seemed like it went well because it was a... And I couldn't believe it was a polarising course. I mean... I said last week on a tweet, it was, there, was no, there wasn't one thing on that golf course that any Australian golfer would no, even give a second look. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, in America, it's this revolutionary inland links and it's created so much commentary. When, when it was just... It was awfully green, green plates, I thought. Was it green when you were there? It looked green. No, it's always been green. Yeah. No, it's always, it was always quite green. But, well, it's, you know, it's Dallas in summer. Yeah, anyway. Let's go to chapter two. And chapter, this, this might be one of McKenzie's most influential contributions. Now, the 13 principles, quotes. I know that you've... I've spoken to you about these many, many times, mate. We start the book with those. Is it too much to do all 13 in one hit? I might get you to run through them close. You keep reading the principles until you hit one that you particularly want to expand on. Well, people quote this, the course where possible should be arranged in two loops of nine holes. Now, he wrote that in 1920. Hmm. He goes on the page later, during recent years in the, in the United States, I've had more sleepless nights owing to committees being obsessed with this principle and everything else. Now, I've often regretted that, that it was ever propounded. <laughs> so he smashes his first principle of pieces there. Because clearly it's a... I mean, if you're routing a golf... Unless you absolutely have to have two tees to start on for the function of a club or a public course, nearly always the best... It's an imposition on the ideal routing to have to come back to the clubhouse after nine holes. You well, can tell something before you start, doesn't yeah. it? Before you start yeah. painting, here's the outline that you must stick to. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to be back. You have to, the ninth green has to be over there. Yeah. Well, that might that, that might be the best golf course at yeah. all. I mean, there are so many great courses where the ninth hole doesn't isn't anywhere near the clubhouse. The old course is the prime. Yeah. Thing. It goes yeah. all yeah. the way out to the ninth, and then it turns yeah. out yeah. and it comes all the way back. And the national golf things and Cypress Point, and there are so many great courses where the ninth hole is nowhere near the clubhouse. Yeah. You can tell he's torn on that. I think it's one of the things where, and it's all through the book, that he's trying to do the thing that is going to get the most people playing golf. Play the game. And and I think he feels like that's one thing that does get more membership. Like it gets clubs, uh, it gets people interested in golf because, you know, it could be shorter or you can get more people on the course. Um, so he's a bit torn with He's that. in the business of golf courses. And, as Champ Lee pointed out, he's in, mm. he's in the business of trying to grow the game in America. That's one of his, the things mm. he's doing. And yeah. He's in the business of it. So those things need to be considered, don't they? Because as you know, as a golf course, I mm, sure. if you had just free reign to build golf courses, they look very different to the fact that they actually have to fit into some kind of a, yeah. an actual real human situation and be a club and have other functioning things. And all of that compromises the golf courses in some ways. Uh, number two. Should be a large proportion of good two shot holes and at least four one shot holes. So the the at least four one shot holes is well, he didn't. He, whilst he's credited with design at Kingston Heath, he, the course was already routed when he got there, but it only has three, and the old course only has two. So, so he's paying a thousand on not, not getting his own <laughs> principles right. So, but, but I think, you know, I think arguably there should be four or five. I mean, Mike Kaiser, I know, loves short holes and is encouraging. More than four, mm-hmm. but one shot holes. Plates. Could he possibly mean there the par three and a half? He could do that. The short yeah. par four. Yeah, is that, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true because he didn't talk about par. In fact, he didn't talk about par, par all. Ball, no. So yeah, he might include that ninth and tenth holes on the old courses, one shot holes. Yeah. In fact, there are a whole bunch of one shot holes on the old course now. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm. that's very true. If you play it just <laughs> on the old course, if you go outside to the championship, to these yeah, on yeah, the five yeah. other yeah. golf courses that surround it, you can get a much better challenge in the modern era. 
uh, in that way. Number three, clubs. There should be little walking between the greens and tees, and the course should be arranged. So the first instance, there was always a slight walk forward from the green to the next tee, and the holes are sufficiently elastic to be lengthened in the future, if necessary. Visionary. Uh, yep, and yet you go to Crystal Downs, and there's a long walk from the 11th to the 12th. But most of the walking there is short. But, but the, the promise of a long walk has to be it's worth it at the end of it. Yeah. And at Crystal Downs it is because it opens up a whole different part of the property and the great holes out the back there. But the essence of a great routing is that there's little walking between the greens and the tees. But, 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 but I, well, and I think it, I'm, he talks about it later, he would abhor what's happened at St Andrews, which goes to the ball and what's happened to the ball. Because he's talking about leave room behind the tees so that if, if the, because there's no limit to science, you might have to move the tees back. He would abhor the sameness of that 60-yard walk back into the right. Yeah. On, was it 14 of the 18 holes on the old course? You, you would hate that. Anytime you're leaving your clubs in a spot where you can get them on the way oh, back. Yeah, I think that's, the, the great thing was to walk off the green onto the tee and go to the next hole. Yeah. To, to, but to make the same walk back, you know, you, you turn and you walk back 60 yards back then the next time. You do it so many times on the old course. It's so noticeable now, not for the public players, no. but for the... For the open champs, it's an it's awful. The, it's the opposite for the public player, isn't it, Clarence? You walk well. The the second tee, the third tee, and the second green are all, they're the same patch of grass. Well, yeah. sort of well, and the, the fifth and the sixth, and you, you, you can you putt from the third tee if you happen to miss it. You just putt it straight up there. It's all part of the second yeah. green. There is no walking into. So it's one of the things he would be most critical about the old course now was how it destroys what he would call the continuity of the play. Yeah. That horrible walk back, and that's the same. It's the sameness of that walk. The long walk between the, you know, the sixth green and the seventh tier, Royal Melbourne, which is 130 yards. It's, and you know, it's fine. It's a, it's a you walk. It's a good time to reflect on how you just made eight. By yeah. <laughs> well, only else in the in the Heineken. but of course that wasn't Mackenzie's hole. That wasn't part of his routing. That, that was a hole that Alec Russell and uh, Morgan did after long after he'd gone. Uh, I think the other thing that's I was thinking about long walks and I bring it up every time if you haven't been there you must even if just for this from the fourth green to the fifth tee at Bamboogle Dunes is the most spectacular walk I've ever taken on the planet yeah. golf that is a walk that you try to incorporate I'd imagine whether it's in the holes or not somehow get that in and well, we that's made what that. happened isn't it, it, it the, you changed the route so that it it had a better view of, of that walk well no there was a much shorter walk yeah. there's a direct walk from the fourth green to the fifth tee yeah but we deliberately made yeah. that to take people out to that. We said, we've got to bring them here and make them. So, so in that sense, we made people walk 50 or 60 yards longer than they needed to because that was the, that's the minute, the moment people fall in love with Bamboogle. It's got nothing to do with golf. No. And it's the making of the day. Yeah. I've been there for the first time with a couple of people and everyone has the same reaction. Yeah. Not one person has walked around that corner and gone, yeah, it's all right or that's yeah. nice. Yeah. It's all... Yeah. For those who haven't been there, you don't see the ocean. Well, you see the ocean when you pay your green fees, but you don't see the ocean from the first tee to the fourth green. You walk up above the fourth green and hook back around to go to the fifth tee, and you're looking over Anderson Bay. It's just amazing. It's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's, one of, it's one of those experiences where you'll hear this said a number of times before you get there, and Adrian will go there one day, and you'll walk off the fourth green thinking to yourself, this has been overhyped. There's no way this walk can be as good as Clates and Royal yeah. Hotel, and you're going to walk around the corner and you're going to stop and you go, wow. Wow. And it's the well, same 14 as... 14 to 15 at Cypress Point is similar, yeah. isn't it? A similar sort of experience. I've just come from Denmark as well, where 
there seems to be an obsession with long walks between green and tea. Um, but I, I must say I kind of enjoyed it because a lot of the time you walk crisscrossing through forest and they're lovely nature walks. Yeah, it, it, it depends on the quality of the yeah, walk. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sure. The, the 800 metres from the 8th green to the 9th tea at Bonville is not one. But it's the same as when you get to the top of the hill at the 5th at New South Wales for the first time. Nature's smacking in the face. I think it's fair to say there are only three principles in. It's fair to say. To skip a few, I think. These are kind of guiding principles. <laughs> these, these are the things you strive for, but to to vehemently stick to these where you must have it. This was not Mackenzie's intention no. with those principles. The, the Greens and Fowies should be sufficiently undulating that there should be no hill climbing. Well, he wrote this. Well, no, he wrote this in 1920 before he designed Augusta. Yeah. Now, it's a hill climb up the 8th of Augusta around the 18th and yeah. there's plenty of hill climbing at Augusta yeah. every hole should be different in character that's kind of yeah. there should be a minimum of blindness for the approach shot so we can point at the 17th at Kingston Heath but, and, and, although he spoke about having a reference with the sand dunes behind so he would yeah. the Alps hole at Prestwick would get a pass but um, yeah and, and having the, the hill a little bit to the side so yeah. you, know, you, can, you can get a little peek the course should have beautiful surroundings and all the artificial features should be so natural in appearance that a stranger is unable to distinguish them from nature itself, which is why there's been such a push back towards architects building their own work mm-hmm. because we went through a long period where contractors built the work and they were not very good at making their work look... Road builders don't build... Particularly, yeah, so all the great courses... And, and Mackenzie would applaud the fact that Bill Corr and these guys yeah. have... Doken, Gil Hansel, we do it as well. We're building our own work. And that's the only way to, to, to nail that seventh principle. The stranger is unable to distinguish them from nature itself. Is You've got to have skilled guys who are building their own stuff, who care about it, who spend time doing it. In terms of architecture, guys, that might be the most important of all the principles, might it not? Well, the principle is important, but how you achieve that principle is important. It's, yeah. it, it's, the, it's the handmade the boutique firms now that are... Authentic. To go back yeah. to Shackleton, yeah. use this word authentic three times. I'm going to get it out of my head. It's authentic, isn't it? You would, you would hear famous golfers uh, saying, well, we're designing 30 courses around the world. Well, are you trying very hard on all of them, or yeah. are you just spinning out a three series BMW while Bill calls over there doing one but making a Ferrari? Yeah. yeah. Because he actually cares about it. Yeah. Uh, number eight. There should be a sufficient number of heroic carries from the tee. The course should be arranged so that the wicker player with the loss of a stroke or portion of a stroke should always have an alternate route open to him, which is kind of obvious. I mean, the, you know, yeah, the, it is kind of obvious, but <laughs> you find an awful lot of, well, the 17th at Sawgrass is a classic example, is it not? Hmm. I mean, or Pine Valley. He's yeah. very critical of Pine yeah. Valley later in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pine Valley. He loves it, but he's also critical. Yeah. 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 But that notion of just having goggles is so hard, there's no option for the wicker player. Yeah. So, I, I mean, for me, the in Australia, a classic hole, well, his hole at Royal Melbourne, the 10th, and the, uh, and the copy of it, which is really the fourth at Bamboogle, which is, has that huge bunker embedded in the hill, which you should never go in no. unless you carry it on. You know, it was what Jeff was talking about at Trinity Forest. The, the course will give you a par. You only make a bogey when you try and make a birdie. Mm-hmm. So both those great holes, and, and one spawned the other, was that there's that one heroic carry across the bunker at Royal Melbourne but you can assure the carry as, as, you can go as far from those carries as you like but you, you're, you're giving up the Mark Brody who does the shots to whole thing 
he will say, well, you're giving up a, a portion of a stroke. If you carry that bunker, you will get up and down from 30 yards away, X times out of 10. If you go 80 yards away, you'll get up and down far fewer times out of 10, but you won't be, ever be in that bunker. I've got some video of my mate Tom in that bunker that I'll show you. Day, so I'm not sure whether the funniest thing is him up in the face of the trying to execute the shot as a 22 marker or the trudge back up with the yeah, rake after he's done it. To clean it up. But both are very entertaining, I can tell you. Uh, number nine. There should be an infinite variety of strokes required to play the various holes. That is, interesting brassy shots, which was a two wood, which doesn't really exist anymore. Iron shots, pitch and run up shots. So you could. Um, that's kind of obvious. I, you know, I think that, I mean, you, yeah. you wonder where the brassy shots are anymore in the modern game. I mean, the, mm, the ta- in the professional game, it takes something that's in excess of 600 yards to mm. introduce that, that that shot. But Especially into a, as an approach shot, yeah. and, and, and the skill required in getting one of those to go high. And if you told him that it took until October last year for Dustin Johnson to play more than a 7-iron into a par 4 on the US Tour, he would uh, he'd say, well... Which part of principle nine didn't you understand? Yeah, USGA, RNA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting application of this principle later on where he talks about you shouldn't dig out every bunker deep because that demands that you play niblick out of every bunker. Uh, whereas if you have a bit of variety in the depth for bunkers, then you can play other types of shots out of bunkers. Mm-hmm. And, and then you know the better golfer is going to have that variety of shots, whereas everybody can hit a niblick out of a bunker. So if every bunker's too deep, then... Yeah, you're losing a bit of variety. Dictatorial. Yeah, the, the 40 yard blast with a low seven iron over a shallow lip. Yeah, is a, but if, you, if it's a deep lip, you, you've got to take the lob wedge of the seven yep. to get it up as well as get. Ten. There should be a complete absence of the annoyance and irritation caused by the necessity of searching for lost balls. Well, you understood well. Is there anything worse than looking for lost balls, especially someone else's ball? Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, your own ball's bad enough, you're absolutely right, but somebody else's ball. When you first play at Royal Melbourne, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a joke about Royal Melbourne. We're playing Royal Melbourne rules today, and they say, what's that? And that you look for your own ball. <laughs> <laughs> Those two words are perfect, aren't they, to describe it? The annoyance and irritation. Yeah. That's what they mean, yeah. annoying and irritating. Yeah. And you play a golf course that's got a lot of long rough and places to lose goals, annoyance and irritation is what builds. As you play the But the most time. annoying place to look for a ball is not in the trees or in the forest or in the bracken or the heather. It's in long grass. Yeah, yeah. Looking for a ball in five-inch long grass is mm. just the most annoying thing mm. ever. I'm glad you said five then, Clates, when you first started. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be something else. Number 11. The course should be so interesting that even the scratch man is constantly stimulated to improve his game in attempting shots he's hitherto been unable to play, which is kind of obvious. Keep the game interesting, no matter yeah. how good you get. Yeah, don't make it dull and boring and predictable, and, and just just a test of executing range shots, just high straight. Yeah, you know. one after the other. Number twelve. The course should be so arranged that the long handicap player, or even the absolute beginner, should be able to enjoy his round or her round. He should have put in there, in spite of the fact he or she is piling up a big score. In other words, the beginner should not be continually harassed by losing strokes from playing out of sand bunkers. The layout should be so arranged that he loses, he, she loses strokes because he, she is making wide detours to avoid hazards. Yeah. That's kind of the essence of strategic golf, yeah. isn't it? The strategy yeah, yeah. is uh, only take on what you've got the skills yeah. to... Uh, and, and build bunkers that get the good players, not yeah. the bad players. Yeah. Yeah. And the closer you go to those, yeah. the, the better angle you have. That, that he, she thing, thing is interesting, folks. You're constantly talking about playing with 
his wife, Joyce, uh, Joyce Willard, is yeah, his, Joyce thinks Willard. he thinks yeah. she's the best golfer yeah. he's ever seen. Yeah. Marion Holmes, Holmes is a, yeah. a, 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 surrounded by women far more so than what we seem to be today. And yet, yeah. as you say, never mentions in any... Yeah, it's a very masculine... It's a very masculine sort of time, yeah. isn't it? Probably Although I think he was quite enlightened by, you know... The, Clearly, like his obsession with Joyce Weather as well was. Mm. Uh, it's a photo of her swimming. Yeah. Yeah. Position. No, I think he's, he's yeah. fairly enlightened. I think and yeah. open-minded. So. No person has made more threes on the fourth at St Andrews yeah. than Joyce Weather. Yeah. Which is now been changed, isn't it? We'll come to that later. Uh, the course should be equally good during winter and summer. The texture of the greens and fairways should be perfect, and the approaches should have the same consistency as the greens. So I guess that the interesting, well the point about that because he goes on later to talk about if you never have a bad light mm-hmm. how do you ever know what a good light is so I'm not sure what, what he would describe as whether his perfect would be Bamboogle or Metropolitan slash Victoria slash Kingston Heath slash the average golfer's perception of what perfect is I can't tell you how many people who go to Bamboogle and tell me oh, was it, you know, the course wasn't in very good condition <laughs> because I think they're so used to this has been the measure of what a well-conditioned course is, i.e. there are no bad lies. And if you get a bad lie, the course is not in good condition. So you gust the national effect, isn't it? Absolutely. Sure yeah. You see Augusta every yeah. year, and it is literally yeah. perfect, yeah. which is completely unfeasible, unreasonable, and in fact, isn't what you want no. at all, which is what he's saying. No. And yet, it's come to be held up as the goal for golf courses. So, golf so, so, when he's, so I would say, he, if he went to Bamboogle, I would say he would, even though those fairways aren't perfect, he would say they're perfect for, they're golf. Perfect for mm. golf. I love that term. That's yeah. a, a wonderful way to describe it. You know, the fairways yeah. not, fair <coughs> not perfect, but it's perfect for golf. Which is, um, which is what do you take from the thirteen principle? The, the danger of putting them down, as he goes on to say, almost immediately with that first one that he came to regret almost immediately because people latched onto it as a, some sort of hard and fast rule which must be adhered to. Um, the danger is that reaction to writing these, mm. but these are important if you, if you think about these principles in the right way. Um, they really do guide everything in there that you need to create good golf, don't they? Mm. That was a question. Let's see if I got the answer that it deserves. <laughs> Fair enough, too. No. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. So uh, that's the start of chapter two. Uh, very quickly, other things in chapter I think this is where the meat of the book is to me in this chapter and in the, the, the one on um, the economy. Well, I, you know, I think. Yeah, we we bang on about it now. The most interesting putting course I've seen is the ladies' putting course at Sanders, the Himalayas. Even first-class golfers consider it a privilege to be invited there and, and, and are to be found there putting with the greatest enthusiasm from early morning till night. Uh, you know, I think Himalayas putting greens are one of the ways to... If people talk about this mm-hmm. grow the game thing, which we kind of <laughs> have a love-hate relationship with, yeah. you know, they're talking about Elstonwick, a public course in here, closing it down, which is... I kind of support that because the course is so bad. It's, it would only discourage someone from playing golf because if that was your only experience of golf, why would you play golf? But build a Himalayas putting course on that. You know, it doesn't take up much land. You know, get kids whacking a ball around a crazy. I mean, rather than mini golf, which is, I've always thought was stupid, mm. completely minus and stupid, but successful and makes lots of money. But give them a Himalayas putting green mm. and and have it right in the middle of Elstonwick and give have a bag of putters and balls there yeah. and let kids go crazy on make up that's the way to get kids playing golf so you know, he talks about the importance of the, of the Himalayas putting green and again again a hundred years later here's something that 
when we talk about growing the game, I think could be an incredibly important part about <clears throat> introducing people in, in suburban areas yeah. to golf without having to e- expand and much and on land or space or and, money or... And timely, as you and say, time. in both Melbourne and Sydney at the moment, the pressures on those courses are true. You remind me of this comes later in the book. Might have to do the chapters because we're skipping ahead to them in some ways. Uh, I hope to live to see the day when there are the crowds of municipal courses, as in Scotland, cropping up all over the world. Mm. It would help enormously mm. in increasing the health, the virility, and the prosperity of nations, and would do much to counteract discontent and Bolshevism. Now, he's quite the, <laughs> the anti-Bolshevist, as it turns out, yeah, in this chapter. Yeah, but very much so, he, exactly as you were saying, then, Pazzi. Golf being accessible for people is a real theme of this book, isn't it? Yeah. That it shouldn't be an exclusive and exclusionary sort of game. Um, am I not mistaken? The Himalayas Park is actually now the second tee of the Open Championship course. It's in Edinburgh, yeah, so yeah. that's a new use for it. Isn't it? Yeah. One can only imagine the horror that uh, would. Uh, now, Adrian, Chapter Two. What did you highlight in Chapter Two? Uh, I've got I've got a few notes here about. Um, actually, I'm not sure whether it was in Chapter Two, but. Uh, I've got the note here about uh, a bunker eating into the green and appropriate that we're here at Metropolitan um, is by far the most equitable way of giving a golfer full advantage for accurate play. It not only penalises the man who is in it, but everyone who is wide of it. For example, a player who is in the road bunker and the 17th at the old course uh, with a good explosion can get out and lie dead, but a a few, very few can pitch over it accurately. Um, So yeah, the worst shot like leaving yourself having to pitch over the bunker is a far more difficult shot than mm. being in the bunker. Yeah, um, shaking thinking about <laughs> But by the same token, you there is like the road hole itself, and I think he goes on to mention this, has that opportunity for imagination to play a part where you can putt it around the bunker and leave yourself Music. dead as well. Yeah, um, so uh, it's a wonderful piece of architecture there. But for anybody who, and amateur golfers relate to that paragraph so well, I think that it, the horror of having to chip over a bunker is is, well, is something yeah. when you're confronted with it, you, you're thinking, I just, I don't want to go in the bunker. Your mindset is a little bit different as an amateur, uh, isn't it? It's like, I'm trying to avoid getting into that thing, which is... No, it's is, a legitimate option. It's terrible trouble. Just, <laughs> just go just, in there. Just knife it straight in, okay, out of the sand. I'll, I'll get yeah. I'll get on the green three from your yeah. that, Well, that's Except, kind of the way you yeah. should be thinking. It kind of is. Yeah. Um, it, it talks about the real object of a hazard. I was just about yeah. to read that, so I'm yeah. glad you picked that one. Yeah. 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 Most golfers have an erroneous view of the real object of hazards. The majority of them simply look as a ha- look upon a hazard as a means of punishing a bad shot, whereas the real objective is to make the game more interesting. And that's so true. I mean, you know, people complain. People complain often about bunkers only affecting bad players. There's a cross bunker across the first fairway at Metropolitan about. I mean, Todd Sinek can almost drive into it, so it's kind of 370 yards away. So it's right in play for the old bloke I play with on Saturday. And with his second shot. With his second shot. <laughs> and it, you could, he could look at that bunker in two ways. He could complain that this bunker, I've never been in it, 45 years I've never been into it. He could complain and moan about that bunker and say, this bunker only affects bad players. What's the point of punishing me? Or he could look upon that bunker, as McKenzie says, that's the thing that makes the whole actually more interesting for him to play than it is for me. The first hole here is much more interesting for him to play as a three-shot hole than it is for me to play as a two-shot hole. So even though he's 80 years old and he can't play anymore, he gets the point of the bunker. He understands that that bunker is making the hole more interesting for him. There is a golf club, Clates, and tomorrow when you play here, 
for the first time in 45 years. There's I'll be in a bank. Never tend to fight. Anything else? Because that really struck me too. Yeah. And that really speaks to me. The way you think about golf really affects the way you enjoy it, doesn't you? I feel sorry for people who feel that narrow fairways, long grass, deep bunkers, that that is golf. That isn't... Defined edges as well. Yeah, that... That's choosing yeah. to live life as an accountant instead of as an artist, isn't it? And there's something about that which is a bit sad, yeah. I think. And if, if you accept that hazards are there to make, if, make the game interesting, and hazards need to be well-placed yeah. to make to justify their existence, but, it, but if you want to give up on every hazard that, that affects only a bad player, then you, you dumb the game down to the point where, as he talks about later the reason people give up golf, they move away from St Andrews and go to England and give up golf because the game's boring. Yeah. It doesn't stimulate them anymore. So there are lots of bunkers at St Andrews that only affect bad, that only affect bad players, but, but you know, they're the things that make the game interesting for players who don't hit the ball as far as golf pros hit the ball. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So anything else in Chapter 2 there for you, Well, there's some great stuff on trees that I think you wanted to... Uh chat about I, I did not, but, well lots of people will be wanting me to challenge you directly about this quote well, yeah, yeah well no, and, I've, and I've made a note about the <laughs> you're expecting this, yeah, this I am because, this because I've made a note about the 12th hole of Victoria okay. um, tell me what Mackenzie says about trees well, we, we need to go part of the most important it's the most important sentence in the book one of them narrow fairways bordered by long grass make bad golfers they do so by destroying the harmony and continuity of the game and in causing a stilted and cramped style, destroying all freedom of play, which was what Ballesteros spoke about at Oakmont in 1983 when Jim McKay interviewed him. He, he was playing well in the Open, they're hitting irons off the tees. And yeah, they wanted to. He played with Watson the last day, yeah, he, and he played well, but he said this, this sort of course encourages more mechanic-type play. Hmm. And it's exactly what mechanic-type play. Mechanical, Graham Marsh, Halo, and which is not to denigrate, they were great players, and they played. You know, I'm a huge admirer of the way they played golf. That setup encourages that very methodical, straight, accurate hitting. Whereas Mackenzie was a lover of Hagen and, and encouraging and building courses without knowing for Ballesteros. Mm-hmm. Give them space because this is much more fun to watch. That's the Chambly point, is it not? that he was making on the podcast was that that, that that era of that style of golf with the narrow and the punishing rough produced Ben Hogan and that there is a big segment of golf that would like to see a test of that at least once a year. I'm not one of those people, and Mackenzie clearly speaks yeah, against, yeah. but in a broader issue, a lot of people will say that at least once a year they miss the old US Open. When they talk about the old US Open, they talk about the US Open in the 80s and 90s, essentially. Yeah. That they miss that, that once a year this should be the test. Uh, I'm not convinced. I don't think any of us are convinced. Well, well, maybe it should be the test to prove that we only need it once a year and it shouldn't be encouraged mm-hmm. every other the week. exception that yeah. proves the rule. So that's the most important line in the book. So why is it the most important, though, Well, because people think that difficulty is good mm-hmm. and that the true reward of a good drive is that it's a straight drive, yeah. not an accurate drive. And the principle he on all the courses he built was built around the accurate drive to a particular point in a wide field which is what we saw last week to drive accurately you'd have to drive straight to drive accurately but but the straight driving test is there is no thought to a straight drive you just hit it where they tell you to hit it and you either hit it or you miss it the accurate drive you've got to, you've got to consider where you've got to hit it to because if you just hit it straight you'll you'll create 
you know, a different angle and a different shot. And, and, and he was all about producing different shots from different parts of the fairway. Now, if you go to the left, you get that. If you go to the right, you get that. So Tom Doak was talking on a podcast the other day about a hole somewhere where he took maybe Brian Schneider, I can't remember who was Brian Schlanek, who was building the hole, took him to the left side of the fairway. And he said, make this shot from here look as different from here yeah. as it looks from the right side of the fairway over there. So the 17th at Royal Melbourne or, you know, any, any you know, the bunch of the holes he did at Royal Melbourne or, you know, make it different from one side or the other. But if you have it, if the fairway's 20 yards wide then or 30 yards wide, then you can't make it look that much different. You can't do that. There's a real importance to that, accurate hitting, not straight hitting. And I think a bit like the scoring, people miss the point. Just tease that out a little bit as a concept because most golf fans will think that, you know, hitting the ball straight is the ultimate goal. This, I think it's what Chamberlain was saying, the Ben Hogan yeah, machine. That, that's, a, that's a part of the test, is, yeah. is to identify the golfer who can hit it long and straight. And straight. Um, of course, part of the problem with this US Open argument is that that's up on the stage as the model of how to, how to do golf, yeah. which is where it does some damage, I think, but... Sorry, you've got a point on this, Rod. I think you've got a very interesting take about width, but the the actual width for, for good score. Oh, my line that I came yes. up with when I was saying Adrian. I was thinking about it going to Trinity Forest plate, so I think it's a, it's a nice way to encapsulate it. Wide playing corridors, narrow scoring alleys. Mm. And that's that's a test of both mind and physical, isn't it? Yeah. Narrow fairways is a test of physical yeah. only. Yeah. And so it's a lesser test. Yeah. To me, but there's an awful lot of people disagreeing with this. So, so, so the you know, seventeenth at Royal Melbourne. Well, the, well the, the, the great hole is the the row hole, Sanders, where Watson drove it. He thought almost out of yeah. well, almost out of bounds down the, in '84. Yeah. Yet he had the perfect angle into that flag, and every yard you are left of that is a yard poor of the angle. Mm-hmm. It's not just black and white. Yes, it's good. No, it's not. Every yard you, which is the shades of grey argument against the risk and reward of the black and white of risk and reward of the shades of grey. So every yard you went left of that, the, the, the worse the angle you had. The irony, of course, is that Ballesteros was in the left rough, knocked it on the green with a six iron and two putted and Watson from the perfect angle filled over the green and said he made four and Watson made five. Mm. But what that hole brought out was Ballesteros had to do the great shot. Yeah. If he'd screwed that up, he was in big trouble. Even just a smidge. Yeah. <laughs> no room for error. Wasn't just at the wrong club. Yeah. But you know, Seve had no, he had no line there. He had, he had to hit the great shot, and he hit it. He hit it. But he had no leeway either way. Yeah. Yeah. So it drew out the great shot from, which is the other point about the the, the wide fairways is, you draw out the great shot from the wrong side. Hmm. Someone's that's that was why Seve was so great at Royal Melbourne was that, if he went to the wrong place, if he he would be on the fairway. It wouldn't, it wouldn't just be wedging out of the rough like everyone else. But from, from that side of the fairway, over that bunker, say to the 11th on the west course, coming over the bunker with the green gun the wrong way. and the wind. If you're good enough, you could play the shot. Mackenzie gave you the chance to play the shot mm-hmm. if you're good enough. But don't mess that one up either because then you're making six. Yeah. So Sevy could hit it, Greg could hit it, but Marshy couldn't hit it and I couldn't hit it and Finchie couldn't hit it and Irwin couldn't hit it, but Sevy could. But... Erwin wouldn't, wouldn't have hit it there. He would have hit it over. It. He, yeah. he would never have been that wide. But by giving Seve the chance to make six, you, you also gave him the chance to make four. Mm-hmm. Well, by, by giving him a chance to make four, you also open up the chance he would make a six. six. And there's something I've always noticed. Whenever there's tournaments at Royal Melbourne, when you look at the scorecards, 
there's more double bogeys than you see that because when you get out of position, you just can't recover. No. If you're not good. Yeah. You get out of position on the course of these guys play week to week, they make a bogey. Yeah. At Royal Melbourne, they make doubles and triples and yeah. eights and nines. It, it, if you're in the wrong position, it can really, really punish you. It's, a, it's another hallmark of what, it, what makes a good match play course as well and, and why the obsession with score is, is not necessarily... Mm. Um, going to lead to good architecture or you know it leads to a course like firestone where it's just it's all fair because you know good execution leads to a good score yeah we say good architecture but interesting architecture yeah. oh, architecture judged by the criteria well, the criteria in this school, yeah. Yeah. if this yeah. is the measure yeah okay let's go to the trees place well, no, no, we can't no, 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 no. i'm sorry the flight of the ball is it the bit where he, he talks about the floaters? He, he wants to. He I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in limiting the flight of the ball. Yeah. Pleasure in obtaining length is only a matter of relativity. One got as much fun in driving the old Haskell ball 20 yards further than one's opponent as today one gets in driving a small heavy ball 20 yards further. Quite as big a thrill as obtained in hitting a baseball or a cricket ball 100 yards as a golf ball 200. So, and he goes on to talk about uh, uh, there's no limit to science. Yeah. So, of course, 100 years later again, we're now in the mess we're in because no one listened to what he was saying. And, you know, he'd be apoplectic at how far the ball's going now and what it's done to his courses and he would just... And, and, and my question is, you wonder if he was... If he came back now, would they listen to him? Would would, would Wally Yuan and Martin Slumbers and Mike Davis and the boss of Callaway and the boss of Talonade and... If they sat in a room with Alistair McKenzie, would they respect him enough to listen to him? It's an unanswerable question. It is an unanswerable question. You'd hope the answer would be yes, but... But his, his book's here. I mean, he, he doesn't have to be alive to... His words are here. You know, do they respect the game enough and do they respect him enough and what he did for it to listen to what he's saying or they say, we don't care about him? You know, those, those blokes... That go, those golf architects have been making the same argument. See, he was making that argument 100 years ago. Well, yeah, and, and what happened was we obsoleted all those courses built for hickory sharps. And we developed a whole new measure for what worked in terms of yardage. So we went from 6,400 yards at Sayingdale to 6,800 yards at Kingston Heath in 1932 to sort of 7,000 yards, which was the measure for such a long time in the steel Ballada era. And now that's on the, for the best players. For the best players. That's been thrown out as well. That, that's as 7,000 yards now is irrelevant as 6,300 yards was in 1920. Yeah. And so then, do, do we make the same mistake again and obsolete a whole another lot of great courses? Well, this seems to be the only way forward if you continue to want to have professional golf and host. Right. There's simply no other way to go, is there? If, if we are to maintain the status quo and allow things to develop, there'll be no alternative claims because otherwise what you get at the top level is pitch and putt. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, and there's so a reason. Bomb, bomb and gouge is exactly that. There's a reason the pitch and putt world championships are not on TV, yeah. and the Masters is. And then there'll be a, a perception that last week at Trinity Forest was no good because twenty under par one. What do you shoot twenty under par? Twenty one. Fascinating twenty one. So, well, that course was too easy. It can't be any good. What a joke! You know, the cup was four under par and twenty under par, and the course is too easy. It can't be any good. Mm. It, it it would save us from the tiring backwards walks from greens to tees in an effort to obtain more length, destroying the interest in the strategy of the holes, which is what we talk about when we were talking about St Andrews before. He would abhor that. Yeah. 
the continuity of that 60-yard walk back to the team. For no other reason than that to account the for the yeah, that could yeah. be controlled quite easily yeah. with some legislation. He's also, I mean, he goes on at length about how much he enjoys playing with this this bigger ball, which he refers to as a floater. A floater. Which yeah, I, which I've not heard of. Before. But in, in many ways, he's, he's doing the uh, old school version of, of playing hickory golf now. <laughs> he's like, well, I find this more enjoyable. Deliberately like, limiting right. his own I, I know I'm, I'm, the equipment. I'm hitting it, you know, 20 yards behind my playing partner who's using the small rock. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this better. It's more pleasant to hit it. Um, I, I, I can use the longer clubs and the ball gets up in the air. Yeah. Yeah, the um, so, yeah. It's, it's interesting. A lot of the perspectives he provides in the book are from the point of view of just a very keen player. Keen player. Keen golfer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If, you, if you're not going to regulate it like I think you should, yeah, I'm going to play, I'm just my, going to play my own game. I'm going to play the way I enjoy. That's right. And which is an option that's still open to us today. And is probably a growing area of interest. I would suspect. Absolutely. The number of people getting persimmon woods and old blades is yeah. staggering. Listen to Andy Johnson Friday um, talking to Bill Core about the par three courses that they've done at 17 hole par three course at Sand Valley, at 13 hole par three course at Bandon. Little nine hole course we just redid at Shady Oaks. He talks about peewee courses. The peewee courses have come and gone like ships that pass in the night. They have merely left their ripples behind. Ripples, incidentally, which have done, which have been really, which have which have really done an appreciable amount of good. The peewee course was too freakish to remain, but during its brief span of life, it made many converts to golf and created a demand amongst golfers for an increase of variety of approaching and putting on the courses already existing. So. Bill was talking, and Kaiser's done it, talking about the importance of little part, part three course, little courses, mm-hmm. Himalayas putting greens, the little course at Shady Oaks. Going back to small, you know, Bill was talk, Bill Core was talking about small scale golf, which is kind of an offshoot of Pee Wee courses. What was the Pee Wee courses just pitch and putt? Yeah, I guess yeah. I thought yeah. he said specifically later that they're not a pitch and putt. Oh, look, I couldn't figure out what a peewee course was. I'm intrigued to maybe follow it. But either way, it's, it's small-scale golf, right. which is which is coming back into fashion. It takes up less space. It's quick to play. Beginners learn play it. with less clubs. You can do it. You can. It can be really fun to play and interesting. And so it's perfect for urban environments, isn't it? Yeah. The higher the density, the higher the density, the more sense it makes to have. Yeah. Um, you know, go, go build a great four-hole par three course. Par three course. Yeah. People can go at lunchtime. People can go and do it. I used to go out after work and yeah. play four holes in fifteen minutes. And with with the another in that theme, um, there's a there's a bit here where he says this this really resonated with me. Actually, it'll never happen, but I, I just love the idea. Probably of why you love it so much. <laughs> <you> are <laughs> contrary. <laughs> he said, I, I would like to see the rules of golf committee restrict golfers <laughs> to the use of six clubs, and I can't I can't help but dwelling on that, and it's just. It's the source of so many of the things that we see in modern golf in, in terms of the, the time it takes to play a game, all of the um, accessorization of golf as well, which makes it a little bit difficult just to say, oh, I'm going to head out and have a hit. Yep. Um, it's all like there's this, this ceremony around, around the whole thing and getting all your equipment. Exactly. Like, and, you know, just if, it had, if golf was a game that was only played with six clubs, You'd have people on trains and stuff with yeah. with their clubs slung over their shoulders, and they go out for a quick three or four holes and of he, lunch. And he talks later in the book about breaking eighty with four clubs. Yeah, yeah. And who had two clubs? One of the top players. Yeah, um, two Johnny, Ball. Johnny Ball. Yeah, yeah. eight-time British amateur. Yeah, Oilake, yeah, yeah. 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 There's a difference, between 
dumbing <laughs> down and simplifying, isn't it? What Adrian's talking about yeah. is simplifying golf, which is yeah. a good thing into the good of the game. You know, a half set game is fantastic. Dumbing down is what you were talking about earlier with the, you know, um, simplified golf that isn't sort of simple. I've yeah. made that point well, but there's a real difference yeah. between the dumbing down. Well, I mean, and just the, the accessorizer, I mean, the iron covers. And, oh, it's just excessive. Oh, no, no, you've yeah. got the Seamus head covers, don't you? Those, uh, yeah, Shame, they're nice. They're nice. Good accessories. Walker bags and Jones bags. Right. Right. If you've been a re-education kid, you'll know what accessories are okay. They have to have very small logos. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trees, yeah. Trees should not be placed in a direct line to the hole yeah. as they block the view too much. They make an excellent corner for a dog leg. Interestingly, the 12th of Victoria is a great dog leg hole with a beautiful yeah. tree on the corner. And we, it's coastal manor gum, isn't no, it? No, it's, it's an angophora, I think. Oh, okay. And we built a bunker that, when we built it, wasn't as much under the tree as it was now, 12 years later. It's now half the bunkers under the tree. And one of the interesting questions without um, getting too far ahead about what we might do is, do we fill the bunker in order we cut the tree down? And having read what he says about the importance of a tree on the corner of a dog leg, being a... Um, much more of the view that get rid of the bunker, which I think was a conclusion we'd come to anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's up to the club to decide what, what they, whether they want to listen to what we think about the three options, which is leave it alone, fill the bunker and cut the tree down or fill, or cut the tree down and move the bunker. But it's a, it's a, that, that's one example of a great tree on the corner of the dog leg. So I've given you the opportunity to do this before, but it can't <clears> be given to you too often. Yeah. Explain to people what your actual stance on trees is, because there is a myth about Mike Clayton. Oh yeah, trees. I had trees. No, um, trees. Are, well, trees were never part of the original game. So the game was formed around hazards, hazards on the ground. Yeah. The links had no trees. By definition, they had no trees. So it was about the interest in the game was the, the wind, the bouncy turf, the undulations, the the, the, the difference in the lies, uphill, downhill lies, sidehill lies, and the hazards on the ground, the, the, the bunkers, the header, the, all the things that, and the wind. So when it moved inland, invariably it went to sites that had trees on them. So trees became a part of the game and they enhanced the game, the inland game, because they, they were beautiful, they were beautiful. No, no one likes, you know, it was telling us who said, it doesn't have a beautiful tree. But the early architects understood that as culture, they were part of the scenery, not a part of the stage. So get them off the stage. That's what people haven't ever... There are a couple of things with trees. They've, in, they've imposed themselves too much upon the stage at places that don't understand the proper role of trees in golf. And few people have understood the, the importance of planting what belongs. Yeah. So in Australia, we've always... Most causes have made the disastrous mistake of going down the line in the, when they planted these courses out in the 20s and 30s of let's plant European trees, let's import those spotted gums, the lemon-scented gums from New South Wales look fantastic, let's plant them. Right outside the clubhouse there's a Fisofolia, which is a famous tree at Metropolitan, but it's from Margaret River. So there was a great desire to import. And our argument is that the surest way to make a piece of land feel unnatural is to plant stuff on it that doesn't belong. And the surest way to maintain the natural feel he talks about is to stick with the indigenous vegetation, which one looks at as though it's in place. And it's the, and it's the vegetation that's taken thousands of years to evolve into that. So it's, it's, they're the trees that have 
proved to be most suited to the site they're on. So when you're growing, when you're building a golf course by the sea, don't do what they did in the 50s and plant uh, those big mahogany guns, which when they grow old and tall in the wind, they just drop their limbs. So every club in Melbourne had to go and cut down every mahogany gun because they shouldn't, you know, and they should never have been planted in the first place. So it's get them off the stage. Nicholas talks about Pinehurst being the best course I know from a tree tent, from a tree standpoint to totally tree line golf course without one tree in the playing strategy of the golf course. So trees as a part of the part of the scenery are magnificent. Get them off the stage, and that's what people who love trees and think I hate trees don't understand that basic principle, which is Harry Colt's principle: of get them off the stage. I just wanted to give you that chance because I, I, it annoys me. People say, "No, I hate you just hate trees." It's what's cutting me. First thing you do is you you cut down all the trees, and then you're thinking about what he's going to do with the golf course. And I know that's not true, yeah. and it, it's been deliberately misconstrued. Oh, yeah. What you're well, but, but because because people don't read books like this no. very <laughs> often, so they don't have. A, there's no nuance in the debate. No. No, no one knows how to debate what he's talking about because they've never read the book. So that the, the, their opinions on golf based around their own experiences. They love New South Wales because they get to the top of the fifth hole and they fall in love with the golf course. You know, they love Bamboo because they go around the corner and see the water on the... Nothing to do with the golf at all. No. So they, and they come to Metropolitan and they get every life's perfect. So they, I think it's, a, it's a, like Ernie Els said, it's the second best golf course you've ever played behind Pebble Beach. I mean, Metro's a terrific course, but Ernie, really? I mean, it, it, look, it did look magnificent for that match play, but just because... You know, I mean, don't be swayed by your own personal experiences. You know, look at more widely about the game and that's why this book's so important because it opened it would open so many people's eyes to an alternate opinion this book really is the difference between thinking about my game and the game isn't it yeah of course because yeah. it's a constant battle for all of us it doesn't matter who you are mm. you know there are golf holes I've decided I don't like because they punish me for whatever reason when in fact any objective viewing I would suggest that A it's just a golf hole and B there it has some merit in other ways that I'm not considering because I don't like the way I play and he talks about golf pros designing bad courses because golf pros want to design tests of execution they want to design narrow if they're straight hitters build a course that's narrow straight and for yeah. the, the crooked guy gets punished yeah, yeah. And, it, and that is absolutely true alright so we're still in chapter 2 here which is interesting yeah. I've got to chapter 3 oh good I get I've turned <laughs> over to chapter 3 kick us off on chapter 3 could you please Economy and golf course construction. Economy and golf course construction. Uh, to obtain the best possible results at a minimum of cost is the guiding principle of golf course construction. The irony is that the best golf courses built in the last 30 years have been the cheapest ones to build. Yeah. And arguably the worst courses have been the most expensive ones to build. Almost by definition, the worst courses are the most expensive ones to build. Because they they make the you know, talking there was a pod with Rob Collins, Sweetens, yeah, Gary yeah. Duncan. Yeah, fantastic. And Rob was talking about the importance of building good golf cheaply. Now you can't you know, the guy that goes and spends thirty seven million dollars on a golf course can never get a return on his investment. He thinks golf's a horrible business. But Richard Sattler who goes and spends four million dollars less building a golf course. He thinks golf's a great business. Yeah. He didn't waste money on building a ridiculously expensive golf course on a bit of land that wasn't suited to it. You know, they had a great bit of land that was cheap to build a golf course on. If golf works, if, it, if, if, if the economics work. But, and, and saving, the architect's saving money, not wasting money on ridiculously expensive golf courses. It's a huge part of the future of the game. So that's why this chapter is important. 
Well, it's about the business of golf, isn't it? Mm. And the business of golf will ruin itself one day. Yeah. If it's allowed to just continue being... And it's about architects saving money. Yeah. And, and, and we've been, just been through a whole era where there was no expense spared by architects on well, shipping sand across oceans, to, to, you know, because the sand didn't spec out perfectly. Well, it was a marketing tool, wasn't it? You know, we spent two hundred million dollars yeah. building this golf yeah, course. Yeah, Ergo, it must be yeah. fantastic, yeah. and that's just such a is the complete opposite of what golf. Yeah, you know, the number of people that come, well, a golf course they cost a million dollars a hole to build. Well, no, actually, the sand hills didn't cost them; it cost a hundred thousand dollars a hole to build. Yeah. Ironically, it's not necessarily architects that can solve the problem though it's it's like people architects are just responding to demand there well, architects people, people want white <coughs> sand from some like oh, right, yeah, a yeah. hyper real experience when they go out into a golf course and and, and Mackenzie talks about all sorts of things that today would be completely unacceptable people would find some of the compromises that he makes for the sake of uh, cost saving completely unacceptable like leaving the grass cuttings on, on the greens yeah, and stuff yeah. and I read that and I thought well, yeah of yeah. course that's that's fine I, I, actually, I don't know whether that makes agronomic sense but maybe it does but people will, just wouldn't accept it these days and because people don't accept that you've got to use fertilisers and then you've got to use fertilisers so then you've got to control like the root growth in another way or you know you've got to stop Everything the leaves getting too another, another like, and it just it builds up and, and to the point where you know because because people don't want any blemishes on their fairways. Like he goes on at length about, uh, you know, how a bit of variety in the colour of green that mm. you see is, is is interesting. It adds visual interest Fantastic. to a hole. Yeah. And Harry Colt makes a comment about Sunningdale that he's unhappy that the, the lines of the course are too, um, they're just too straight. You know, I had to check them all well we'll see that this week at Wentworth at the British PGA I just abhor watching that yeah. golf course it's, yeah. it's the, the, and well it's, 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 I think there's like even photos like in chessboard. what that used to look like the, 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 the yeah. map of England grey and everything just, just don't look, don't just don't <laughs> it looks so amazingly fantastic but uh, yeah just these little so how do you overcome those things because they're matters of taste and tasticles change and things going fast so you and I had this argument with somebody not that long ago who, you know, cheekily emailed us a picture of a checkerboard cut. Yeah. Football ground. Yep. Which kind of looked nice, you know, but it's a completely other. But on a golf course, 15 or 20 years ago, I'd watch golf on TV and I would either be indifferent to that or say, oh, that looks fantastic. I now look on TV and I find it jarring and I find the golf difficult to watch because of that aesthetic. So that changed for me. How do we make that... How do we get other people to realise why that's not good? Because that's really the important sport, isn't it? That's right. If you continue down the path where the checkerboard fairway is the standard for good golf... People associate that. And even further, you, you see even rough gets striped these days. Yeah. And people associate that with... Attention well, to detail. That's right. A course that can afford to stripe their rough must be a place where I want to be a member. Yeah. But first of all, they're overwatering the rough to, to get the grass to grow like that. You look at the... The grassing here at Metropolitan, and it just, it just off, doesn't it? It's just wherever the yeah. water has ended up landing is is where the grass stops growing, and that's where the rough is. Um, but it's, it's basically all the same length. What do you reckon, Clay? You've got a scar on your head there from where you've been bashing your head against this wall <laughs> for several years. What do you reckon? What, what does it take? You must have seen something when the light bulbs gone on. What what makes that happen for people? Do you think? In terms of, because I don't think it's architects, it's, uh, it's golfers. That well, you we we don't see it much in Australia. Anymore. No, we don't. You don't. You know, and you, I think you see it probably more in England. Oh, you, we'll see it this week at, at Wentworth, and 
the Ryder Cup probably and you just you know you see that it's really an English thing mm-hmm. you don't see it in Scotland it's a, it's a very English kind of I don't know where it comes from but talking about English I have great admiration for J.H. Taylor winner of five <laughs> British Open champions yeah, yeah, so even Mackenzie was yeah 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 <laughs> he is one of nature's gentlemen and is exceedingly well read has original and common sense views on health politics no doubt to the right and many other subjects many other subjects and moreover is a born orator and writer on the, on the other hand he is not a success at designing golf courses <laughs> Scabies. It's kind of like trying to disagree with Peter Thompson, isn't it? To put it in an Australian context, you know, it'd be like sitting in a room with Peter Thompson. And he said, "This is a good feature on a golfer." It'd be like having the courage to say, "Actually, no, it's not Peter," mm. because of course you automatically defer to somebody who is so accomplished yeah. in the game. You can understand yeah. why golfers generally think golf pros must know more about the game. That might be one of the biggest hurdles in this arena, might mm. The era we've been through, the, the name architect, is that. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to say, it yeah. seems, on the face of it. If you're a golfer, yeah. you must know what makes it a golf course. Yeah. Because you played them all over the world, and you yeah. played them well. So, yeah. um, and that's just Which was certainly the case pre-McKenzie and Cole. The golf pros designed Tom Morris was the original. Yeah, yeah. the first golf pro, and the first mm. golf course actor, yeah. really. Um, yeah, the pioneer in so many ways. Uh, speaking of pioneering, some pioneering construction methods he talks about there, too, which I thought was interesting as well, Clancy. He, he really has tapped into the business side of golf, isn't he, and the importance yep. of... Being able to do golf at an affordable price for everybody. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, um, well, he, he understood that his job was to save the client as much money as he could, which I think was a point lost on architects that came later who were get very happy people. to spend. But because they were, perhaps because they were working for clients who had unlimited budgets, but, yeah. you know, that was, that's not a great thing for golfers. The, the content of the unlimited budget just, Expands the idea that golf's expensive to build when it great golf shouldn't be. What was it about whistling strengths? He gave us an unlimited. He exceeded it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, managed to exceed it. He he talks a bit about Scottish thrifting here and talking about we haven't had enough of Mackenzie's humour. He relates three little tales here about thrift. I'll read the one that I thought was the the most interesting. A local lad had grown some very fine grapes and sent some of them to the Queen at Balmoral. He got a gracious letter thanking him and thought his garden would appreciate seeing it. So he showed it to him and asked him if he didn't think it very gracious of the Queen. The gardener turned the letter over and over in his hand and after some hesitation said, well, I don't see anything about her returning the basket. (laughs) 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 Which I think is lovely. That uh, speaks beautifully to Scottish drift, doesn't it? Uh, there's a million things in this chapter. Adrian, what have you got for uh, uh, Well, actually, I don't, I, just, it, I don't know if it was in this chapter, but it goes to his his thing about wanting to do the right thing by the course in terms of um, running it as a business and getting as many people playing golf as possible. Uh, he even makes the comment that um, at Cypress Point, uh, you know, he was judging it by how many rounds of golf uh, yeah, they play. Yeah, and and these days, thing. that would be the complete opposite. It's yeah. like, well, you know, the more exclusive the club, the less rounds of golf that are going to get played there. And uh, he was deriding the um, Monterey Peninsula. I, I guess it's the site of the current day Monterey Peninsula Country Club, which is a fine golf course, <laughs> but mm. a very great, really great golf course in fact. But uh, he, he feels like the, the land there was, was you know, potentially yeah. the, the equal of Cypress Point and, and wasted. Um, and it's reflected in the, the lack of rounds that are played there. So uh, yeah, he, he was a guy who was very conscious of this you know, of the importance of getting a lot of people playing golf. Mm. And it goes to his motivation of getting into this architecture yeah. business all the start because he saw it as, as medicine, yeah, Get, getting out. And, mm. Early in the next chapter, which we'll come to in a moment, it touched on both what you just mentioned there and what we were discussing a bit earlier, and I think this is really important. The real practical test is its popularity, talking about a golf course. But this brings us up against another difficulty. 
Does the average player really know what he likes himself? That's an intriguing notion, isn't it? Do we really know what we want out of golf course? And there are an awful lot of people, and many of them who don't bother to go on and find out why, but I suppose I had the light bulb moment when I went to the UK many mm. years ago where you walk off your first Lynx experience and you think, that was amazing. And eventually you say, what a why it was amazing. Mm. And then you go on to the next. Not everybody goes to the why, do they? Mm. People will go and play Bamboo, which is, I think Ray Morris had told us this on the State of the mm. Game podcast. People know why they love a they know that they love a golf course, but they could not tell you in a million years why. They love the experience they have. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's a very subjective and personal thing. So um, if, you, if you're wowed by the reputation of the club or the flashness of the clubhouse or the quality of the fairways or the quality of the views, then you're bound to love that golf course. Mm-hmm. If you're wowed by the questions the course is asking, and, and no course, as he, as he says here, no course since has asked more interesting questions than St Andrews. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're wowed by it. And, and the, for the first time player at St Andrews, you can't be wowed by it because you can't understand the questions. You don't know what the questions it's, are. It's so complex. Until you play it multiple times. So the friend of mine was, is, is going to play there later in the year. I said, don't waste your money unless you walk around it. There's no point playing St Andrews unless you've walked around it before you play. <coughs> Excuse me, because you won't know what's going on. You'll play it and walk off and go, that one be good. Well, the first sight of it is confronting, isn't it? The first yeah. time you see St Andrews, well, you miss it. We missed it. We drove yeah. past it, looking for the golf course. Yeah. And then we turned around and came back. And we went, well, that, that can't be. There's a flag. That can't be there, sure. Yeah. There's well, this flat waste of mess of land. Sam Snead, what's a disused cow pasture? Very you know, much so. past the can, Once you've seen it, you can understand that yeah. reaction, can't you? Because it is your first reaction. This can't be one of the world's great golf courses. This is a flat piece of land. Of course, it isn't. That's no, crumpled. But... But you've got to, you know, what you take out of it is, I think the more you understand the game, the more you understand what you take out of it is, is each course is, what, what's it asking you to do? Yeah. How interesting are the questions it asks? Well, in, in a way, we're into uh, chapter four. <coughs> which is, well, yeah. uh, which I is do fantastic. Out of only eight yeah. chapters, we should be out of here by this time tomorrow. <laughs> which comes to the most important sense in the book. Most important. Another most important sense in the book. Why players give up golf? And yes. I, this is, yeah. I've quoted this a million times. It is a remarkable thing about golf courses that nearly every man has an affection for the, the particular mud heap on which he plays. It is probably largely due to his associations, which, which is what we're talking about. Exactly. Probably largely due to his associations. His friends play there, he knows the course, and can probably do a lower score than elsewhere. He may perhaps also have pleasant recollections of the dollars he has won from his opponents. <coughs> it may not be a real course at all. That's the key to it. It may not be a real course at all. There may be no interest or strategy about it. It simply gives him an opportunity for exercise and socking a golf ball. He is opposed to any old races being made to it, but the time inevitably comes when he gets tired of golf without knowing the reason why. Perhaps after spending a holiday on some, some good golf course, he clamors for the reconstruction of his home course or migrates elsewhere. I've met at least three or four men at St Andrews who learned their golf at school or college and came to England. After playing there a few years, they gave up the game altogether. Not one of them realised that the reason the game had lost its charm was because they were no longer playing golf, but a very bad substitute for it. Now that is the most important sense, more important than the rough sense. That's the key to golf. And you know, People talk about growing the game. That's how you grow the game. You make it interesting. Yeah. And you don't dumb it down and make it boring and you know, predictable and fair and all that stuff. That, yeah, but, but people have got to get the 
the spirit of the game. You know, get away from the from, from the card and pencil mentality of anything disrupting their succession of threes and fours. Yeah. 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 I've got the eye candy being the most important some of the other things that we yeah. most important. For me personally, this really speaks to me because I'm a member at a club whose golf course is not particularly interesting or particularly good. Yet I would rather go up there every Wednesday and play with the group of blokes that mm. I play with each week than to go to... Most other golf courses, you know, mm. there's golf courses you want to play because you're interested in the subject. So that's been a, that's that's an an intriguing and important element of golf, is it not? That the experience of the the other stuff is as important as the golf stuff. Right? I would rather play with my mates at Mangrove than with three people I didn't like at Royal Melbourne. Absolutely, yeah. Which is kind of counterintuitive. I can't yeah. believe. No, it. I, and true. go to the clubhouse and have a have a discussion about the game and what's happening. And that's right. Your lives and you're playing with your friends and, and you're hitting shots and mm. you know yeah you're, you're right absolutely that's why I love playing at Portsea. Portsea's a terrific course, but you know it's a it's a great club where half the people vote for one political party and half <laughs> vote for the other one and half have doctors and half are lawyers and half are painters and half are school teachers and there are kids and old women and it's a great mix of it's the same thing you're playing with. Like-minded people it's who get the game, who love it. Yeah, the, yeah. The ideal is to play with those blokes at Royal Melbourne. Yeah. yeah, which is the marriage of, which is what a great club is. That's right. It's a marriage of a great course with, and that's why Bamboogle is such a great place because so everyone can go there because it's public. So everyone can, everyone who can't go and play at Royal Melbourne can go and almost match the quality of the architecture and, and go to a place in jeans and a t-shirt yeah. and you can get dressed up in jeans and a t-shirt and as long as you behave yeah. that's fine and, and and there are no rules about behaviour because Richard would say well people who come here know how to behave so I don't need to tell them how to behave and that's the perfect golf club if, if, you, made, if you made the trek all the way to Bamboo and you don't know that, yeah. then you've really, you've really yeah. made quite an error of judgment yeah. you're probably yeah. going to last anyway yeah, yeah. Um, it's, but it, it, it stimulates the mind to think about golf doesn't it that yeah. What part is that playing? What part yeah. is that playing? How important? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's, there's nothing worse than a member of a great club who doesn't understand who, who doesn't understand yeah. the golf. Who, who's a member of the club because of what it's called the status, yeah. the status of it. And yet, if you ask them to write a 500 word essay on the strategic merits of the 17th hole, they wouldn't know where to start. Well, that's Sydney golf, isn't it? Really well, no, that can be anywhere. That can well, be Sydney. That can be Royal Melbourne. Melbourne. That can be Royal Sydney. That can be the Australian. It can be Royal. It can be anywhere. It can be any club. But the people who are members at great clubs with great courses, because great clubs and great courses aren't necessarily no, yeah, comparable. No, they're very but people who are members at great courses who don't understand that golf course, they're, they're a waste of space. Yeah, Because yeah. they're only members there for the social prestige of being members there. And that's, you know, that's not what golf ought to be. That's about. one of golf's image problems, isn't it? Because non-golfers yeah. believe that that's what it is about yeah. golf that appeals yeah. to the social climbing and all this other stuff. Well, even worse is people who are on committees at those courses who want to be on the committee because they they want to be, you know, the captain or the president of such yeah. and such a course. That's their reason for wanting to yeah, be on the committee. Yeah. Yeah. So when we win the lotto, we can, we will, the fees will be, you, you, you submit your tax return. That's right. And you pay your fees according to your income. Well, and, you know, the good doctor wouldn't want to be in the That sounds awfully like Bolshevism. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. and, half, and half of you vote for one party and half vote for the other. That's right. Well, a third vote for one, a third for one, a third for the other. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we want school teachers and we want everybody. This is one of the, well, not the most important, this is one of the most interesting ones. The line of charm lines. We hear this term quite a bit. Most people will have heard the line of charm. <coughs> Mackenzie talks about it. What is the line of charm? Well, it's not... The line of he's talking about not just taking the direct line to the hole. 
it's, it's veering off the. Is it even straight holes or dog legs for if they're played properly? So people criticise Rand Furley as an example. Well, they're all straight, but none of the holes play straight. So he's talking about that you don't necessarily take the direct line of the hole. That the, the, the ideal line is not is often to the side to, to swerve around it. Well, the twelfth year probably isn't, yeah. isn't a bad example. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're, you're kind of forced to go one yeah. way. Or the other. Yeah, one way or the other. Yeah. What do I say? I've not heard it. I'm not sure whether before or for a long time, but not all I mentioned on the Trinity Forest coverage, there's a centre-line bunker, hmm. which gives you four options. Yeah. Left, right, short, or long. Which Mackenzie talks about a lot in his book yeah, about so the, the, the four options of left, right, yeah, yeah. over, left, right. So, yeah. Analyse the holes on the old course at St Andrews. There is hardly a hole where the correct line is direct from tee to green. Yeah. Yeah. We've pointed out before that Max Baer says the direct line is the line of instinct. If we wish to make the whole industry, we must break up that line and create the line of charm. The line of charm. Mm. Yeah. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautifully yeah. encapsulates what he's saying, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, that's probably the essence. Which is, you know, we did work on, in fact, the, the preface of the book talks about Mackenzie's course at Royal Queensland, which is not there anymore, essentially, because we redid it because they lost a bunch of holes. But you know, there are a lot of straight holes at Royal Queensland, but there are lots of centre bunkers. And you don't, you know, you rarely play those holes. There's barely a hole there that's where the ideal plays in a straight line. Yeah. You've got to go to, you know, you, you never aim at the flag off the tee. Yeah. Well, you, you never say that's never, you rarely. No, that's right, isn't it? There's the only, there are no absolutes in golf. There's the only thing we can establish quite firmly from this book is that there are no absolutes. Adrian, are we really on chapter four? Jesus. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's a good chapter. This is more or, or less Mackenzie's. This is the best. Well, we can just read the whole yeah. book. And this start is finish it. That'd be a podcast. This is Mac- this is Mackenzie's uh, confidential guide, really. This, this yes, chapter, very much. Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, there's one, and you could just linger on every single hole. He really. I love that he talks about his own holes in a fair bit of detail, like 16 at Cypress Point. So this is ideal holes and golf courses is what it's called. Sorry, I didn't know. I think I said Indeed, that. yes. Ideal holes and golf courses. And Just let me, before we interrupt, mm. I think we, to be or not to be is important. Yes. Oh, yes. Certain kinds of difficulties, however, should be eliminated. In this case, we can, I think, put long grass, narrow fairways and small greens because of the annoyance and irritation caused by searching for lost balls the disturbance of the harmony and continuity of the game, the consequent loss of freedom of swing and the production of bad players. He understood what made good players. What He wanted people to play well. He didn't want people to play badly. Well, it's an important aspect of the, yeah, game, of the game. That's right. Which, so is, which is how... Improve. Keeps going back to... He would, have, he would have loved Seve, how he played golf. Because mm. Seve... <coughs> people will say he was a bad driver. But he created the environment where Seve could play well. Yeah. And that's why he won at Royal Melbourne and St Andrews and Augusta. It's why he... Because Mackenzie understood St Andrews and he created the playing fields where that player <coughs> could, could play his best golf. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's what he got. And that's what the, the, the proponents of the sure. narrow, high-rough test, maybe once a year, maybe. But that's wanting people to mess up and play badly. Yeah. Now, people want to see... People who want to see seven over par when the US Open, what they're saying is they want to see people play poorly, in a sense. Where he he wanted to encourage good golf. That's why you, that's why Gus is the best tournament of the year. Because he it, it encourages great golf. Yeah. 
There's two types of golfer, and there's two types of golfer, aren't there, Clades? There's Hogan and Seve. Yeah. They're your two extremes. Yeah. Mm. You're a Hogan yeah. fan, or is it, you can be a fan of both, obviously, yeah. clearly. Yeah. There's much to be admired from both. And, That's and, right. But and if, if they, you have one, people will split into two camps. Yeah. If you can only have one. But I, but I think they would have admired each other. So do I. I think they would have hugely admired the skills of each other. Yeah. yeah. In fact, they, they obviously lived at you know, the same. I mean, Seve obviously... You obviously knew Hogan, and, and Hogan obviously yeah. had seen Seve play, and I think on TV, I assume. But you know, they, they would have been admirers of each other's skills. Yeah, I, I agree. Seve is what I always come back to. I meant to have this discussion with Chan Lee when we had him on, which was you know, he's he what he's a proponent of looking for the next Hogan, which you pointed out several times. The Americans have been looking for the next Hogan, that machine-like golfer who just hits it exactly where he wants to all the time. He's not that golfer's not punished by Mackenzie golf. He's rewarded by mm, McKenzie. Absolutely. Uh, Hogan wins just as much on a McKenzie course as he does a, 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 an Oakmont that's 20 yards wide. Arguably more, because he, he was the smartest one. He would figure out where to go. And he's yeah. the accurate hitter. Yeah. He's the ultimate yeah. accurate hitter. He, he can yeah. hit exactly yeah. where he wants Hogan to. Hogan was... He could find the strategy within yeah, a 30 yeah. yard. Yeah, yeah. Hogan was... Yeah. You know, he, he figured out Carnoustie in one go and yeah. just nailed it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tragedy of the Hogan's career where he didn't win five Opens. He should have gone there every year yeah. and won... Five times, but yeah. The um, th- there's a word that comes to mind a lot in that in in that part that to be or not to be is this this question of fair. And there's, there's a sentence here which I highlighted that there is not only much skill required, but an improvement in one's game results in occasionally having to play out of a cupped lie or from an uneven stance. There are a few things more monotonous than always playing from a dead flat fairway, and it's it's surprising to me how much that contrasts with the ideal of professional golf where it's like it, it, you know if you hit it out in the middle of the fairway you should have a perfect lie it should be flat and you can hit it into the ground like people love Berta for example yeah like because almost yeah. all the lies there are flat um, but they'll hate some, some, well they'll George. criticise Ross and George's where yeah. two guys with the, where it's all crumpled yeah. two guys with the same shot yeah one will have a perfect flat line. One will be on a, you know, like, well, that's not fair. Well, no, no. it's not fair. Yeah, that's not fair. It shows what you can do. Because yeah. five holes later, <laughs> yeah. it'll, something else happen. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah. And it's interesting. And that's why, and, and it goes to that point of why people give up the game. Uh, it's because it just becomes this monotonous, boring. But for some people, just hitting the ball is golf. Yeah. Rather, yes. than, rather than playing the game. And that's just a big I think people often think that those of us who sit around and have a book club about the spirit of St Andrews yeah. are some kind of wankers who think yeah. they're on a different... I don't, I don't feel like we are. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want from yeah. them. One of the great joys of golf is it can be what you want it to be. And for me, this is at least as interesting as going and playing 18 holes of golf somewhere to sit here and have this discussion with sure. you. Yeah. Probably take about people... the same amount of time as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, well, yeah, we JB Holmes, four hours, ten minutes a shot. That's right. Yeah. There are some people who couldn't even anything worse than that sitting and having this discussion. So you, you take from it what you want, I guess. And I think Mackenzie would have been all to the... to the, he, he would have endorsed that. You know? For whatever reasons you play golf, it doesn't matter, but play it. Yeah. Your life will be better for it. Yeah. Uh, and you'll be better for it. Um, Clayton, I can see you thumbing through there. I, I came to the 11th at St Andrews, which I particularly wanted to talk about. <clears throat> There's no hole that's been copied more frequently than the 11th at St Andrews, but I don't know any copy that has the charm, the interest, or the thrills of the original. This is largely owing to the fact that the subtle slopes of the green and approach are overlooked, and there are few, if any, architects who have the courage to give the same marked tilt to the green, being much too afraid of hostile criticism. This is quite long, but it's fantastic. An architect fears to cry freakishness in the uproar of the press. If perchance some popular competitor like Bobby Jones puts a little too strongly and his ball rushes down the slope into the Strath bunker. 
Peter Dawson wasn't one of those people, was he? He flattened the green. He did indeed yeah, flatten the, flat the green. For all of the reasons that we're about to hear, Mackenzie suggested you shouldn't. Some years ago, a friend of mine was playing the amateur championship, winning his way into the third round. At the 11th hole, he put his tee shot into the strap bunker on the right, while his opponent was in the hill bunker on the left. There was a large crowd following a pair, I think it was Blackwood Hill, who were playing the seventh, which crosses the other and the gallery deserted them to come and see the fun. My friend and his opponent played out of these bunkers into the Eden beyond the green and back down the steep slopes into the bunkers again. And after taking 14 strokes, were exactly where they started, but their positions were now reversed. My friend was in the hill bunker and his opponent in Strath. They finally halved the hole in 17 amidst huge cheers from the crowd. <laughs> Can you imagine a British amateur in the modern era place where two boys could rack up a 17 and there wouldn't be calls immediately for the hole to be blown yeah. up? So uh, that's one thing. And it leads into, he talks then about criticism. This is where he talks about being disturbed by the lack of reaction to Cyprus, yeah. being, which he expected to do. So talk, as an architect, let's talk a bit about that, because I'm not sure whether you're aware. There are some people who are not fans of your work. Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know whether you've ever been told that, but uh, <laughs> there are some who, who don't appreciate what you talk about the role of criticism and, and the way you feel when... Are you like Mackenzie? Are you disturbed if your work isn't criticised? Uh, well, no one ever says anything to your face so you never so there's no yeah so I mean let's pick a hole that's off the 30th at the lakes which is a, mm-hmm. a green which is a green not unlike the fifth green last week at Trinity Forest where it's a 70 yard wide fairway and you can it's 300 yards downhill you can drive it on and if you had a perfect drive you can drive it up you can either drive it on the green, as Adam Scott did with that, the best throw I've ever seen, throw it in the green. Or you can drive it up right in front of the green, chip it up to four feet, make three all day. But if you miss it on the side, if you try and drive the green and miss it on the sides, you're not going to make a very easy, you might make three, but it won't be easy. You have to do a great shot. And you can, but you can make four. But if you play the easy tee shot, if you decide to hit the three iron down the 70 yard wide fairway with no bunkers and no trouble, if you hit it into the right part of the fairway, you can pitch the ball right up the line of the green. But if you go to the wrong part, if you miss that that little part where you get this direct line up the green, then you're pitching across the shoulders of the greens and you get a an infinitely more difficult shot. And you've got to hit a great wedge shot. And then if you miss it, you've got to make a bogey. And how the hell do you make a bogey on a 310-yard downhill hole with, no, but with one bunker at the back of the green and a fairway 70 yards wide? So the hole asks some pretty obvious questions. The it's answers a, are complicated. It's a simple strategy. It's a really, really simple strategy. Simpler. And it's, you know, people are critical of it because they think it's, as he would talk about here, freakish, unfair and not golf. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, it's no, the green's no more freakish than the fourth green at Woodlands, which is 100 years old, but accepted because it's 100 years old. It's, um, it's a, people think that a short hole should be easy. I mean, we could have easily built an easy green at the bottom of the hole. And you might as well have called it a par three. Yeah. Let's just make a 300 yard downhill par three. It was like open, isn't it? Yeah, you could have done that. But it's a difficult, demanding hole that requires either a great drive or a great pitch shot. If you don't take on the drive and choose to play the easy tee shot, you've got to play to the right part of the field. Just delayed the difference. And you've got to hit a good pitch. If you play that easy shot to a bad place, You've then got to hit a great pitch shot. And if you try and drive it on the green and you had a great shot, you get a two-putt birdie, or you get an easy chip and a putt from the front. But if you try and drive it on and you miss it, 
you're not going to get no one's going to no one's going to give you an easier chance to make a three than the guys later back 80 yards away yeah. and people are um, there's been more criticism of that hole than any hole other and I don't get it because it's a pretty simple hole mm-hmm. pretty, uh, and, 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 and the hole replaced and the hole replaced was awful yeah. it was a horrible yeah, it was a pretty average hole it was a yeah. shocking hole People have a weird affection for that old hole. But it was a blind pass three and a half across the trees. If I yeah. Well, and, and the women who could, and because we could, we'd have left that green where it was, but the council wouldn't let us take the trees out. So the women who came at the ball 200 yards hit it down the fairway, and they were behind the trees with an impossible shot over the trees to the green. So they had to, they had to pit it down and then chip it to the corner, then chip it off. It was a yeah. dreadful hole. Yeah. I like how Mackenzie <clears> says <throat> sometimes the only way to justify a hole's design is to compare it to a great hole. And, and that's why the 11th is uh, at St Andrews, the old course, is one of the most copied holes in the world. And he, he mentioned somewhere that C.B. McDonald with his template holes at the National, uh, the National Golf Links of America, uh, the, the way that he sold some of those extreme concepts to, the, to people is that, well, I'm just copying the great holes from over here. Well, and, and that's the, what sells the concept of a, an extreme thing. But people are so uh, repelled by extreme features these days. Unless they're 100 years old, Clay. So yes, yeah, but if... The, but no, and nobody would design the road hole these days. You'd be shot. Well, you'd you'd yeah. be shot. But and, it's, you know, the, the next Grand Deluxe, the fourth Grand Deluxe, I mean, you either love... You know, you're, there are two camps of people. You either love it or you hate it. Um... There was a hole that was supposed to be a replica of the 13th of Augusta, and it is if you think about the slope and the fairway, and you drive to the left to get the flat line over the far line of the water. And yet at Augusta, the green was on the water. Yet the lakes, there was a 10-yard or 10-yard, 8-yard strip of land that had an apron and two bunkers in it, and the green. So the water was largely out of play. We thought, well, let's get the green down to the water. But it was a massive green site. So what do you get the green down to the water and build a big flat green? So you go and build a wild, crazy green that demands not a straight shot, but an accurate shot to the point of the green where the flag is or where you want to aim. And if you, it's such a massive green for a hole that's a set. I mean, you see lots of guys at par five, guys at eight irons in there. If you're to the wrong part of the green, you're going to three part. You're supposed to three part. That green's designed. If you go to the wrong part of it, you're going to three. You're supposed to yeah. three part. Oh, the biggest great two part. The biggest compliment I think you can pay that green is I've played with blokes who have no interest in golf architecture, mm. but before like they've looked back down the fairway and there's nobody there, and they said, "Let's go drop a ball there and see if we can two part." Yeah. And and so people link, people linger on that green to which which the, the picture in here about the picture of the Sitwell Park, which the dumbest you know if you're a marketing company, no one's ever gone to Sitwell Park. The if world you, would make a pilgrimage to Sitwell Park if they just if they just left that green alone. Yeah. And because it was freakish, unfair, and not golf, they dug exactly. it up. And, yeah. and it was one of the it was arguably the greatest, most fascinating green. Probably crazy, but who cares? It was a it, Mackenzie did this crazy green that if it was still there, it would be a pilgrimage for every yeah. go, every golf. Everyone listening to this podcast would be that had gone there and gone to Sitwell Park. No one goes to Sitwell Park because no one cares about it. Yeah, because no one's ever heard of the golf course. So. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. But, you know, he talks about freakish greens, yet you go to Augusta, you know, as, as Jeff said last week on the Trinity Forest thing, you know, if if Augusta was a first-time venue for the PGA Tour, yeah. they'd go there once, they'd play the fifth green, they'd play the 14th, they'd suck their ball off the green at the 15th back into the water, they wouldn't have... They'd go home, they'd pull out and go home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so... You know, dumbing down the game to make it fair and make it predictable and, and avoid that. I mean, I don't care about the criticism. I'm happy to debate anyone about that. 
you know, because I think, I mean, not that you want to have arguments for the sake of winning them, but I'm happy to discuss anything, any hole we've done and justify why we did it. And, and you know, if we... Because occasionally people will make a point that you haven't considered, won't they? That does happen from time. Yeah. And you reconsider your decision. Well, Kenzie does it well, several times. One of the criticisms of the, when we did the 18th at the Lakes, we redid the green and made a flat... It was, uh, we didn't do anything to the fairway in front. We, we built the green, rebunkered it. We took it back to the way the hole originally was, the hole that Devlin had done with Von Hagee. And there have been two incarnations of that hole since. And one of the criticisms was there wasn't enough interest in the run-up to the green. And we went back and said, you're right. So we dug that big hole out of the front left, and which, which made it a much better hole than the one we'd originally done. So out of the criticism of someone who was a 20 handicapper, it came a much better hole. So, so certainly there's, you know, there's absolutely validity in listening to criticism because some of it's actually worthwhile. But it better be educated and, and well thought out and smart, not just I sucked the ball off the side of the green, that's not fair. Well, because your tee shot was 30 hours from where it's supposed to be. Think a bit about what that, you know, think about the question the hole's asking you. Yeah. Now, the most unfair hole in the game is the, arguably the 12th on the old course, those two blind bunkers over the hill. Mm. I remember Bernard Langer and I playing the open there. We had two identical drives, two, you know, Good shot, good shot. And we get over the hill and there's one ball on the front of the green, there's one ball right up the lip of the bunker. And we're both going, sure, I hope that's you. <laughs> it was him in the bunker for you, but, 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 you know, but, but I mean, that was a classic case of two guys hitting the same shot with utterly different results. But over the course of the 36 holes we played, we had our fair share of, you know, and Bernard being Bernard, he dealt with, the, with it very stoically. Yeah, he's done all right, hasn't he? He's done fine. He's done right right he came, he's okay, it's fine. He just blew it out and he might think he made a bogey. But, you know, if you try and create a game where two shots get exactly the same result, then you make it... Well, it goes back to the start of the chapter. You, people give up golf for that no matter why. Yeah, you know, right. And argue, even, if, even if you hate the 13th of the Lakes... That might be the hole that you, you you keep hating enough to make you want to come back and yep. try and figure it out. Yep. You know, if you what Mackenzie would refer to as, as someone with a sporting instinct, even though you hate it, you still might want to go and play it. Yep. It's not a bad bit of architecture. Mm-hmm. You might hate the hole, but it's not bad architecture. Yep. Uh, I've got no short game, so to me it's a terrifying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nor, have I got a, nor have I got any long game, so it really does ask. And, and some people would some people would see that in the open that Chalmers won. I forget the year, 2013, the one where the President's Cup, where, when the President's Cup, it was the one, the one before the President's Cup, when Jason Day and Tiger Woods both won part of that hole for five. So some people would say, well, that's freakish, unfair and not golf. And some people would say, well, you know, two of the best players in the world can make a complete mess of a hole that for them is a, a, a five iron, a five iron and, a and a pitch. Yeah. You know, and as Jeff Ogilvie spoke about, if you give up your birdie, it will give you a par. Yeah. But as soon as you try and make a birdie, that, that's the classic case of, as soon as you try and make a birdie, then you can make five. If you just take your four, you'll make four every single day. So if you stand on that tee as Tiger Woods or Jason Day and it tells you it's 301 yards to the front of the green downhill. Downwind some, many you, times. You almost cannot hit the five iron <clears throat> pitch, can you? No. You can't swallow your pride enough. Well, it shames you into hitting the shot you don't want to hit. Exactly. And that's what the great holes are. The great holes shame you into the, hit the shot, hitting the shot you're not comfortable hitting. It shames you into mm. yeah. that line. It yeah. shames you into that yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I don't know how you got there. But, that was um, but, but the one hole that does, that plays out no compunction, is the 12th of Augusta, Mackenzie's hole, where there's no shame in going over that middle bunker. No. Yet, yet that's the one case where no pro's got any shame in playing a 9 45 feet left for the hole. Yeah, that's extraordinary. 
It's a, I've talked about this with you before, I know, is that notion of, you know, the, the time gives these concepts, this credibility that you build the exact room and people just refuse to accept. It's quite staggering, isn't it? You know, if you built the 17th from St Andrews somewhere to, on a piece of land where it worked perfectly, Maybe. you would be laughed at. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and we restrict ourselves so much. It seems that the more modern we get, the more technology, but the more restrictive golf's become. Mm. And, well, again, it's of course this obsession with with, with, well, with score yeah. as well, score. you know. Yeah, the longer we've gone, the more conservative and constrained our ideas have become. Yeah. You know, it started off as this, St Andrews was the course, and here was this big board thing was golf. And, you know, yeah. as, as more people have played, there's more money's got involved in it, more as the game spread, we've, we've, we've gotten so constricted as to what is... Must be par 72, yeah. must have yeah. two loops yeah. of nine, must be four par fours, yeah. must, yeah. Be, must be four. thirty six. At the micro level as well, there's often only one way to play a hole. Yeah. Like yeah, you know, it's another dull, boring golf course where you yeah. just play the same thing the same yeah. way. Yeah, and people yeah. got the game. They don't know why. Yeah. Um, are we still in chapter four? Is it still Tuesday? <laughs> don't you have another podcast to record in about ten minutes? Well, he talks about the TPC hole here. Oh, the island group, Yes, he does. Yes. Many people consider a complete island short hole a good one, but holes of this type can never be considered completely satisfying, as only one shot is required, namely the monotonous pitch. Now, I don't think that's kind of true in the case of I wonder what he would make of that hole it's interesting because it's theatre and it's dramatic it's purpose built for that tournament which is the only reason I give it a pass and it hasn't been copied relentlessly you don't go around and find island greens which is to the good thank goodness you don't but for its position and for what it was built to do it ticks every box that it was designed to tick I think that hole and yet I would argue to the day that it is an awful it's an abomination of But for me, the 7th hole at which Tom Doak calls as... Oh, I'd love to see that. <laughs> Doak calls it the hardest par 3 he's ever built. It's 112 yards to the front sure, of the green. Sure, it's par 4 in Australia. Sure, yeah. it's par 5 in Australia. <laughs> <Let's be completely laughs> that would be a much more... If you, if you could have replicated that hole yeah. in the wind, and, because the percentage of green hit would be way higher on the water, on the island hole. Oh, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a big green. Yeah. It's a huge yeah. green. It's a big target so, for a short yeah. Watching that seventh hole at Bamboogle, no, the seventh the players of seventh in the players' championship would be a much more interesting test than this thing. Yeah. That, that is a true, that is a genuinely terrifying golf yeah. on the seventh at Bamboogle. Yeah. Genuinely, genuinely, there aren't many of those. Well, it's not, ter- not terrifying. I mean, you can. It's an easy four. Again, that's the ogre thing. But have one shot. If you give up your chance at three, it's an easy four. Mm-hmm. You can just bump it out the right and put it. You can lay it up. You can yeah. lay up on it. You can yeah. legitimately. You can just sit out the right and make four. You can make four a day, which is what you can't do on the on the iron hole. That's right. There's no option. You can't make four. Well, you can if you obviously going now, but you can't play for four. Yeah, but that's why it gets a pass because it's not designed for me or Adrian to make yeah. three or four. It's designed for Tiger Woods and Greg Norman and for you and Jeff yeah. to stand there with a nine iron or a wedge yeah. and an eight iron and see if you got the courage to hit yeah. the shot. Yeah. That you have to hit. So for that reason, it gets a pass. But in all it's, a, it's a necessary experiment, isn't it? And and it's one of the things that Pete Dye. It's not worse for it. It's, it's no. right. It's one of the things that makes Pete Dye great. Yeah. Is that he tried different things, yep. and some of those things stuck, and some of them yeah. won't. But because the irony of that hole is, that if you replaced all that water with sand, it loses all of its yeah. factor. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. 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 All gone. Yeah. No, the green. No the green would have to be a third the size. Exactly. Yeah. It would have to be just that front section or just that back section. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's you know it's that amazing 
that's, that's yeah, that's, really, it plays to the finality of order and absolutely and it, it's the, everything the fear that that strikes so now, that once the views again, that you have of it on the approach to it as well yeah. while you're playing the 16 well you forget about that <laughs> the thought you have about it the yeah. night before you head off the first on yeah. the Thursday exactly um, yeah. but that once a year to me is an easier argument to make than a narrow choked with rough US Open once a year as a spectacle I'd rather watch TBZ Sawgrass once yeah. a year oh, yeah. than yeah. a narrow oh, that's a tremendous US yeah, definitely. so that's a much better spectacle yeah. Um, what have I missed here in Chapter 4? Well, he, he, he just goes through a bunch of great holes. The 16th at Cypress Point, 15th at Cypress Point, 16th at Andrews. Talking about how he despised the 8th at Sanders. Yep. At one time I despised with the 8th at Sanders. Huge flat green guarded by one small sultry bunker. Seemed like every time I played the opener, the pin never moved. It was just over that bunker. Uh, it appears absurdly simple, but... Did you hear the humble brag there, Yeah. Every time I played the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Missed the cut twice out three times. I wanted to talk a little bit about the 14th at St Andrews. Yeah. Um, to me, like this, this is the ideal goal. You found that in Ireland, haven't you? To raise that this morning, a sketch of what he runs. Yeah, that's right. And and it harks back to our conversation, Rod, with um, when we talked about Shackelford's book, Grounds for Golf, and and what and and a lot of this book actually is about what's good links land and you know what what you know how to reproduce that in other places, but. There's no reproducing this hole really. It's just it's just so perfect. You, you've got the whole thing. It starts up at the green with an incredibly complex green, and it's important that it starts at the green as well yeah. because you've got to work your way back from there. But it's an amazing green complex. The whole hole from tee to green is relatively flat, but it's this crumpled territory which gives you the opportunity to hide bunkers, and and that's where the you know the artistry of like I think that's what appeals to him as well with the camouflage is the camouflage guide. Yeah. And you've got you've got some hazards out there which are obvious, and you've got you, you've got you know the Elysian fields off to the right which look flat and inviting, yeah. but there's a lot of trouble out there. You, you've that. got the beardies <laughs> that are hidden, you, you can't see. There's there's looks like there's acres of room to the left, and there is. And you play on the fifth fairway. That's right. And you, you've got to, you've got to plan your strategy, and the diagram in the book is wonderful with with like all these lines going through it, and. If you're if you're like the army general planning how you're going to move your army from the tee to this green that's far off in the distance and attack and what's the best angle of attack into that green which goes to the point of like working back from the green you you could choose one route I could choose another we could be a hundred meters apart at different points down the on our path down the hole but there's no less both perfectly legitimate yeah, strategies they're both perfectly yeah. legitimate strategies and you know to me that is the most fascinating. Um, hole that he highlights in this whole chapter because yeah. uh, it just says so much about golf and, yeah. and grounds for golf and and how it can be an endlessly interesting challenge uh, I, don't, I don't think you'd have anybody giving up the game if they're playing holes like that oh, it might be one of the few par fives are difficult aren't they but the truly great par fives there's not many of them it talks about here about the, yeah. di- the differently in building great three shot par yeah. fives how, to make, how do you make the second shot interesting that's right this, this hole does it doesn't it the yeah. 13th of Augusta does it this yeah. hole does it yeah, um, but he would. You know, the furniture Augusta is a four and a half. It's a half par hole. Yeah, this is a genuine. This is not really. A, this is a genuine. Well, well not so much where the anymore. Going, yeah. 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 I believe the tee's now outside the open. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, well, it's on the other course. Move back into the right on this yeah. hole for the yeah. for the open, yeah. which is yeah. a, a river. Did Norman not used to stand on the tee here and hit a draw out over the wall? And uh, no, from time to time, no, it's, it's always been sort of a rumor that he would be that. No, you wouldn't be that. No one would be that silly. You're right. But Greg did have an interesting classic line in his book where he said. 
I love the way Alistair McKenzie designed the four inch Alton Andrews to be played in five different ways. Quite <laughs> 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 sure. It says as much about the editor as it does about Greg. Yeah. It's a very careless to be right. That's 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 a, that's Talks about the road hole. Yes, of course. Well, you couldn't write yeah. great hole holes about the machine. The, the 17th hole standard is almost too well known to need description. Yeah. Probably the most noted hole in the world. It is so difficult. It is by although it's so difficult, it is by no means impossible for the long handicap player. For he can go pottering along, steering wide of all the hazards and losing strokes because he refuses to take risks. Um, I don't know if I get the chance to brag. I've heard it. Oh, yeah. there you go. very good. So. <clears throat> I'm sitting here both excited by that. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very, very <laughs> impressive. Well, so Moving game. along. Mackenzie Greens. Now, this is something I want to talk to you about, Clay. So I was one of the first architects who refrained from flat, flattening natural undulations of green and made artificial ones indistinguishable from nature. Mm. The consequence of that is that every freak green in Britain is turned a Mackenzie Green. Yeah. He relays a story about being on a train um, <clears throat> and that he was listening to some guys. So one guy says to his mates, we've some of these infernal Mackenzie Greens on our course. I remarked, was Dr. McKenzie responsible? And he replied, well, they're called McKenzie Greens, so he must have made them. I was telling Adrian this story earlier. This is, a, sort of, I suppose, a little bit about reputation here. You get sort of labelled with a tag. Mm. A couple of guys did a story a few years ago at Stonecutters Ridge. We're talking to, to somebody out there about their stories of pro. Something about the lakes. <laughs> and uh, he's probably said to him, oh, that dickhead Mark Clayton, he's made a mess of it. <laughs> so the interesting thing about that is... You get this reputation mm. that then precedes you. Mm. People who know nothing about anything you've ever done with it start attaching things yeah. to you. Mm. And so Mackenzie suffered from it, yeah. you would, as most architects would. What does that tell us about people who play golf and the, the, perhaps the sheep and groupthink mentality that can take over about what makes the good, bad, or indifferent golf? Oh, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, they play golf, but they're not interested in it. Yeah. Doesn't even know your name. Yeah. Having yeah. to blame yeah. you for something. Yeah. yeah. Well, which we did, which is fine. But, yeah. you know, you, my, my question is, why, my oh. why don't you like it? That's right. There's things, I mean, it goes to, there's people who, for them, golf is hitting the golf ball and, and not playing golf. What was Tom Coyne's line about the six iron? Better try to, to go to the range and you can't assess with, with hitting the perfect, the perfect six iron. Right. And I got... Before he went to and did his, it was in his book. Okay. Oh, we talked about it. Oh, it, was, it was a beautifully put way of saying, basically, you know, you can get into a mindset. I think Jeff talked about this mm. a little bit last week of you know standing on the range trying to find, you know, the perfectly manufactured six iron, yep. which has nothing to do with golf, yeah, no, at all. Yeah. <laughs> but for some people, that is an end worth sort of pursuing. Yeah, that's right. Um, they're hitting the golf ball. They're not playing golf. That's yeah. You know, the the irony of the, the the story about on the train about. And of course, Mackenzie had never been to the golf course that yeah. the guy was talking about. But on the on the next page is a picture of the Sitwell Park Green. Which, <laughs> yes. if, if anyone has never seen the Sitwell Park Green, if you think the four inch green at the lakes is it's, it's flat compared with the Sitwell Park Green. Yeah. So, you can just spend yeah. hours on So that. you can imagine some guy, oh, dickhead Mackenzie, yeah. destroyed that. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It used to be a beautiful flat green. <clears throat> yeah. Australia gets about not many lines, doesn't it? Australia gets almost nothing, which is amazing given that. As we said before, the impact he had on... I mean, I, mean, I think if he hadn't come here, our golf would have been like South Africa. Yeah. yeah. Just would have been tepid, dull. Yeah. You know, um, Big shout yeah. out to all those South African listeners, of course. He, he showed us what 
a great golf course. Do you, come think, at, do you think he would have ever known the impact that he had? No, I don't think he had any idea. No, I think he had no idea. So he came here and he was here for 12 weeks. I mean, a small, small part of his life, he came here and went to Royal Sydney and told him to fill in half their bunkers and he did a... And the Australian you know, he came, well. came here, he came, went to Victoria, he went to Royal Queensland, he went to Royal Adelaide and they slaughtered him in the papers saying, who's this dickhead Scottish bloke who's wrecking our golf course? Um, and he spent time at Royal Melbourne and showed Crockford, not not Crockford, Morecambe and Russell what he wanted, and he left. He had no concept of the, that, you know, that he transformed golf in this country by showing us what decent golf courses were. Dunlock for us. That's Dunlock. Yeah, for us. well, it was yeah, Royal Melbourne. Well, they wanted have it. Royal Melbourne wanted Colt, and Colt said, "I can't come, so take this bloke. He's my offsider." So he came and did his thing and left. So it's not surprising he doesn't write about it. Yeah. He never saw it. But he, you know, he had an incredible influence on. He does because he showed us what good golf was. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> all the principles of St Andrews can be found in Royal Melbourne. Yeah, every absolutely. single one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and quite even to the untrained eye. Yeah, you know, you can very easily see and find the strategies of Royal Melbourne mm. that make it. And he was obviously a big admirer of uh, Sunningdale and and, yeah. and a lot of culture Which as, as you, well. You believe that's the best golf. Belt in the world, yeah, you? and and it's lovely. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, Mackenzie draws the comparison to, to here as well. Like he says, you know, it's very it's Heathland, yeah. Yeah. and uh, it, it, a lot of this book is about searching for the best grounds for golf, for Lynxland. You know, like he's looking for Lynxland in inland, and it shows in a sense how how he worked he, you know, down when he came down here. <clears throat> you know, he went through the golf in New Zealand like Australia's dead. But he said, while I was in New Zealand, I designed a golf course at Auck- in Auckland, Titarangi. From the construction of the hole, the construction of the holes appeared to be good, judging from the photographs they sent me. So all he saw of that golf course was pictures. pictures. Yeah, that's pictures a tremendous course. Wouldn't have been amazing, I can't imagine yeah. at the time either. So. Tirangi is a brilliantly routed golf course. Yeah. No, not an easy bit of land. You know, clay and heavy and. But that's a tremendous course. He doesn't mention New South Wales at all. No. Uh, no. He mentions advising on the Australian and getting rid of a bunch of bunkers at the Australian, yeah. which. Uh, would of course it's all academic now because it's a completely different course to, to what he would have seen. One, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs about Australia yeah, and nothing, New Zealand. Nothing. Yeah. And one and a half of them was about New Zealand. So yeah. uh, then of course talking about the jogging club in South America, which is noted as one of the I've heard Ron Ruffles talking about that kind of Latin right. America tour around there yeah. and he came blind away, so it was just extraordinary golf. His impact globally is interesting, isn't it? Particularly for the time. I mean, we have jets and all that sort of stuff now, we don't think twice about people. Okay. Yeah, he was on so the boat. He's yeah. the boats. Him and Donald Ross just traversing America. Yeah. The, the effort required just to go and travel to, to sort of... To, he must have thought twice, I would imagine. Presumably to get from California to Georgia, he drove. I guess he drove... Or train or drive? Well, train, train, probably. Trains, mm-hmm. probably, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, train. train. Trains are very... Donald Ross... Um, um, who did Gary Cameron had someone talking about Ross the other week who was saying that yeah, the extraordinary amount of work he got through was almost directly related to the fact that he spent so much time on trains. Mm. So he'd go to a city, he'd get picked up by one of the club in a car, and he'd go to this course, this course, and this course, and then he would go, and then on the train, on his way to the next destination, he had all this time to sit and do his detailed sketches and right. notes about what he'd just done there yeah. before getting off at the other end, mm. sleep, and I'd get up, go and do three more golf courses the next day and yeah. get back on a train. And rely a lot on associates and stuff. Yeah, that's well. right. And, and in a lot of ways, I think, Probably Mackenzie's biggest legacy here was the yeah. associates he created with, with Russell. Yeah, Russell. Yeah. Just on the Pine Valley thing, the possible exception of Cypress Point, the most spectacular course in the world. I've never seen a course where the artificial bunkers of such a beautiful and natural appearance, the undulations on the greens are excellent and quite wild. 
on the other hand, I do not consider any course ideal unless it is pleasurable for every conceivable class of golfer. Mm. Otto Travis, who was born not far from here in Australia's first major champion, was the best player of his day, and he was perhaps the most finished player that ever lived. Yet I understand he was quite incapable of playing Pine Valley. He could not break a hundred. That's an exaggeration. Oh, that's an probably. That's an extraordinary accusation to make. You played there. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. And if you're a bad player, it's impossible. Did you break 100? Yeah, yeah, easily. Yeah, but, yeah, of course. It's not, you know, it's not that. It's difficult, but it's not crazy yeah. difficult. There's lots of forced carries, right? Yeah, but if you're a, if you're a bad player, you can't yeah, get around it. He tells a story about a guy who... Um, oh, what was that? One of them was a man who eventually went around his home course in under 90. His friend bet him he could not break 150 at Pine Valley. He goes as far as the fifth hole where he put several balls in the lake. He then tried putting across the bridge, but failed so often that he used up his 150 strokes before he reached the fifth green. <laughs> Freakish and unfair plates. I think it probably... Pine Valley is the striking example of where it would be so easy to give alternative routes which the weaker player might take for the loss of a stroke or proportion of a stroke, which is what he was on about. Yeah. You can go... You, you'll lose a stroke, but you can go around. Hmm. Pine Valley... You know, hell's half acre at the seventh hole. There's no going around that. You need to go over that. And if you can't go over, well, you just keep hacking it through. Yeah. A bit like Adrian was saying with guys <coughs> 17th at Sawgrass or the Sawgrass course, does that make Pine Valley important architecturally to show us what the alternative is if you don't follow the McKenzie course? Mm, probably, yeah. And, and Pine Valley was understandably built for the committee knows our views, but they inevitably, they invariably reply, we don't want any golfers at Pine Valley except those bordering on scratch. Mm. So it was clearly a course built for first class players yeah and it's a great course I mean every hole's a, and again, it's an a amazing hole they don't know anybody anything except their membership it's a club yeah. yep. so yeah. they have yeah. a golf course but if, if, if I took Peter Hurst there on the eight year old bloke I played on Saturday he literally couldn't break 300 or 400 around there yet he can play to 20 here and yeah. Yeah, he was a good player but he couldn't he couldn't get around that course in like this guy 150 shots that's a bit of an exaggeration but you know you can see that it could happen. Not, you could see that could easily happen. Yeah. I would bet Peter Hurst couldn't break 300 at Pine Valley if he made him hold it every shot. Anybody out there who wants to sponsor that trip? We'll all go on and record the adventure as well. Uh, very, very much loves California and the golf in California. You did a lot of work in California. He mentioned Sharp Park here, Clay, which I know you would know from reading Sharp Park. Yeah. been under threat. Yeah, trying to save Sharp Park. Trying to save Sharp Park and the course. Uh, some of the courses there we mentioned we've seen just recently, like we said. Got to run with the LPGA. Yeah, yep. brilliant tournament. Wilshire as well. Wilshire Country Club. Yep. As well. How was that shot? Yeah, that was the best shot of the year. Shot of the year, wasn't it? Uh, Lydia Coates. Yeah, a lot better than Dustin Johnson's that he hit in Hawaii. But um, yeah. she ran it in. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so yeah, and Pasatempo, of course, you know the famous. I always wanted to live where one could practice shots. Yeah, pajamas. Yeah. Breakfast. Yeah. Before breakfast and that yeah. course is where you did. Let me go to green keeping. I sort of. Uh, well, there's another. Just right, right at the very end, which is relevant to the economy of golf today the rock bottom test of an ideal golf course or hole is not that is not one that enjoys a temporary proper, a temporary popularity temporary popularity but one that lives <coughs> it's true in a sense about golf courses the ones that there are going to be a whole bunch of golf courses and close down in the next 50 years and the ones that survive will be the ones that talk about what we're talking about <laughs> People giving up golf for that night because they're bored with it. Yeah. The ones that are interesting will be the ones that will have the best chance of surviving. The ones that are not, the ones that people get bored of will be the ones that will struggle. 
you could probably loosely define those as the ones that have been built to sell houses in the last. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but they'll yeah. survive though because <clears throat> the people like uh, so no, 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 no one cares about it. Because the, no one, yeah. Oh, I guess plenty of housing estates. The golf course has just been turned into parks. The golf course is well gone, and the houses are still there. I showed Kathy Shearer a couple of years ago, Bob's wife, a picture of. Bay, Bay Tree, where they used to live. I mean, just... No one lived there. The vines growing through the houses, swimming pools full of green slime. Just, just, you know, it, it was a housing estate gone bankrupt and it was closed down and just yeah. turned into a, not, not even a slum. Well, they were never good grounds for golf, were they? No. <laughs> I'll tell you what would be, what would retain interest is Jasper Park. Did you wrap this up an hour ago? Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, Jasper Park in Canada where large black bears roam about the course. <laughs> and on each occasion I played on it, one or more came within a short distance and sniffed at us, then walked on. Well, not on my watch, buddy. You can have that. Black bears coming up and sniffing at you when you're playing on it. Bad enough not having a short game now and being under threat. Green, Green key. key. Yeah. My, my, my campaign was to say that, whilst there's some interesting stuff in it, it wasn't particularly important. Of course, Clates, you responded in the negative. There's some green keeping components here that you think are important. That, uh... Well, there are a few things I've just noted down here. Um, We've already covered off some of this stuff. So the... It's possible to have too high a degree of perfection. Yeah, multicoloured fairways. The worth of having a permanent green committee. Yes. You know, every club can talk about periods where they've gone through where someone's got in on, into a position of power and alter the golf course because that's been their mission is <laughs> to alter something they hate. So the wisdom of having a core of people who run a golf club, who understand the golf course, and it, it's not a continuation of, he talks about the problem of turning over people. You know, once they've been on for three years, you've, you've just gone to the point where they're understanding what you're on about, and they go off and someone else comes on the side and goes around again. So the permanence of green committees is, no one's yet done it, but it's, well, clubs are like Pine Valley, they're run by autocrats do that. Whistler Rock, where Jeff's yeah, in Arizona. The permanence of green committees is something that clubs ought to think about. And he spoke about a golf course that altered its, made changes to a golf course and you wrote they'd be better off throwing their money into the sea. Into the sea. Yeah. There's some yeah. lovely lines there. And, uh, and, and, and the only one shade of grass, green, talks about the importance of having different colours on yeah. the golf course. Not this reverence for green. Yeah. The other thing he talks about here as well is the, <coughs> the notion of retaining the architect. Uh, that, he says they, they did a bunch of, I'm not sure if it's in the green key actually, or whatever, but they did a bunch of courses where they insisted before they started that the club agree they wouldn't change the course unless mm, Mackenzie yeah. and his no, that's good formula or an architect of similar similar standing consulted, yeah. not just we'll leave it you must encounter this from time to time mm. you go and do some work somewhere you go back five years later and they may changed a bunch of stuff about it it doesn't play anything like what you intended uh, a little bit and we tend to go back every year right. so we most of the, cl- the, cl- the club a lot of clubs we work at we just do an audit every year so we're back at the lakes Royal Queensland a couple of times a year just so, and, and we've got all the old pictures, so you can show, well, here's how the bunker looked in 2010, and here's what's happened to it. You need to recut that edge. Or, so it's important to... Which is almost a, a luxury that we have because the travellers, and we yeah. back to the traveller, it was, he wasn't ever going to come back to Royal Melbourne and make no, sure that it turned out okay. Or, yeah. <laughs> Thank, thankfully it did. Uh, I sort of pulled the pin on finishing the green keeping chapter and tending to do it later, so I don't have anything else. Like Clay, have you got any other sort of... Uh, the last chapter is... I felt similar about the next chapter, which is in the 70s and 60s. Mackenzie, interestingly, became a very competent golfer later in life. Was most, a, most improved golfer at Pasta Tempo. Was, was what he described as a dub <laughs> yeah. for most of his yeah. life. There's this quote about a good, a good course 
con- that consisted entirely of one shade of green would be merely ugly. There's great charm and beauty in the varying shades of colour of a golf course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I found interesting was uh, when I visited England and played some of those courses in the Surrey area, I, I was fascinated by some of the native weeds and, and things that would flower, especially around the edges of bunkers and mm. things. And he explicitly mentions that, that those, those sorts of species should be sought out and, and used for those sorts of purposes, like to add a little bit of colour around the fringes of bunkers. And he doesn't mind if they're weeds or whatever, like if they're native to that area, then, yeah. um, retain them for that purpose. And, and it is something that's really striking and, and we don't really see a lot of it in Australia. No. Because we don't, I guess we just don't have a lot of mm. colourful. Uh, it's a more arid sort of. That, yeah, it doesn't sort of promote that. Yeah, that's the right. English have the best roughs for yeah. golf. They're amazing yeah. roughs. In it. It, is, it is. It's quite beautiful. The aesthetic's yeah. incredibly important you know, for all the strategy. Oh, the aesthetic adds an enormous yeah. amount to it. Yeah. You know, all the same strategies of the fourteenth hole would be interesting at the old course, but if it didn't look in any way, shape, or form interesting, it would lessen yeah. the hole yeah. considerably. Yeah. <clears throat> and so. So uh, I don't think there's much to take from the instruction from me personally. I don't think it's an interesting chapter. Everything Mackenzie writes is interesting, but I don't think there's much for discussion. Yeah, the, 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 playing a good round with four clubs was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Also, I just think it speaks to the man that he was a golf nut. Very much. You, you get insights into Mackenzie yep. from this book that I didn't expect. Yeah. And I was always been familiar with Mackenzie and sort of work and you know enjoy the work he does. You didn't know much about the man, and you get it from him himself. Through yeah, book really, this instruction chapter well, is a book within a book. <coughs> it should be a separate book. Too. Um, what was the, who, who, Bobby Jones and who was the other one he spent until 3 o'clock in the morning? Ernest Jones. Ernest Jones, yeah. Talking about the club idea. It gets quite technical. Um, so the final yeah. chapter. Yeah, he just goes, he talks about the run-up shot in this chapter. It always seems to me that the inartistic pitch at every hole becomes monotonous. Inartistic. Yeah, we have yeah. tried to rectify this at Augusta National. And have constructed many of the greens so that when the ground is hard and dry, a knowledge of the run-up shot is essential. <clears throat> Most American courses are overwatered, and, and, and it is hoped that we will not make that mis- this mistake at Augusta. <clears throat> well, so much for that. So much for that. <laughs> yes. Mud balls. Well, I think Freddie will give us a bit of hope that we'll, we'll put a hole on yeah. top of it. So moving on to some thoughts on golf, and the, yeah. the first thing that sort of struck me is because I think it's still true today. It's on the very first, the second paragraph of this opening uh, chapter. How often have we known committees, presumably consisting of men of intelligence, receiving the statement that is golf that golf is played for fun, with eyes and mouths wide open in astonishment? It's always difficult to persuade them that the chief consideration that should influence in making any alterations to a golf course is to give the greatest pleasure to the greatest number. That attitude of committees, this attitude of hard equals good, Clancy. Yeah. We don't seem able to get past it. Yeah. It's not a new thing, yeah. but we don't seem able to get past it, do we? And the yeah. damage it does to the game is incalculable. We want to put a pond in there. Why? Yeah. The hole's too easy. The hole's too easy. How's yeah. it too easy? Yeah. Well, it just is. You can just, you know, I've seen 27 markers out there making birdies. So it's too easy. Hard equals good and fair is, is the measure. Yeah. Like those, yeah. are the, those are the things. Uh, one of the, in fact, the next, the, the next paragraph is... Yes, go the only reason for the existence of golf and other games is that they promote the health, pleasure, and even the prosperity of a community, mm. which is so true. I think, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, blokes, which is what people you know, people don't join golf clubs anymore. When there's such a great club, is a great place to be. It's a great fun place to come yep. and see your mates and to play golf and every week to play together and talk about what's happening during the week and 
Yeah, you know, Saturday games are great fun. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't that speak though <clears throat> to something very much directed to the golf course and the architecture? The, the, the real trend of the last 20 or 30 years for, for people, people don't want to join a golf course and play the same golf course all the time. There's a reason for that, which Mackenzie points out very early in the book. Yeah. If the golf course isn't interesting <clears throat> to play all the time, of course you don't want to play it all the time. Yeah. So part of that problem would be solved in the modern era if we had golf courses that ask more interesting questions every week. Yeah. We don't really do enough of that, do we? Even things like courses within courses and yeah. mixing up tees. And just, we don't, yeah. we've, we've got a formula for golf club play, which those who are members at the moment seem to like. And of course they're the ones that are left because they're the ones who like that. Young people aren't going to join because that golf course to play it every week is not going to interest me. And that's really important for the game. Well, the clubs are going to survive and you know, the ones that, are, that do ask those questions. So the relationship with Kingswood, which is course near here, which is closed down, sold for $100 million real estate, whatever it was, the money gets invested in a peninsula and makes peninsula a much better golf course. So the game is much better off for peninsula being a much better golf course because it's lost. And Kingswood was, was a good course 40 years ago. It got older because it had so many problems with boundaries. It got older out, out of being a good course and it turned into a bad course. Not a bad course, but you know, a course that was the 14th best course within 10 minutes of Royal Melbourne. So in this economy, it's not going to survive. But the investment in something else made for much better golf. And golf's got to invest in making... Interesting golf. Best, make right. make golf really interesting, and make golf make give, give people a reason to keep coming back to play a whole lot of thirteenth and the lakes every week to try and figure it out, mm. and just give them the same boring test that they can they can maybe par the easy hole every time, but it's not, it's not asking them anything interesting. Yeah. Well, it gives Rod like people like Rod the the same experience that time eye-opening experience that you had when you went to the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For, for me, it was like I grew up playing at Maitland, which is an okay country course. But for me, when I, every now and then when I went and journeyed up to Stockton and played Newcastle Golf Club, I realised there was something different about that. And then also my dad was quite well-travelled and, and would tell me about other golf courses. He played down, down here quite a lot and told me about that. So, yeah, the more good golf is out there, the more people will just have this awakening mm. and... and it's about the business, right? I think that's what golf grapples with at the moment. Is what's the business model going forward? The club model doesn't seem to appeal to a younger audience, but I do wonder what, how much of that is to do with the quality of the golf courses that are offered to join. Yeah. Because you like the other elements of golf, the scene, the catching up with the blokes every week that you like, and you know, you might play probably 12 or 13 different blokes, in mm. different, but they're the same sort of 12 yeah. or 13. They're always good fun to play with. We play for a bowl of chips every Wednesday, which is by far the most important tournament in the world every <laughs> week. You know? um, and, and it truly is. That's something I sort of started about six months. And now all those guys are so into it. You get to the first season, they're right. Who's in, the, who's in the teams? Who's playing against who? Those things, those intangibles, you can't get if you're not a member of the club, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. You can't get that as a travelling golfer. Yeah. Well, so playing against environment, that's important to maintain the club environment to maintain that. You've got to take on flesh and blood as well, which is a, a point Mackenzie makes here. It's, it's, there's much more fun, and golf is much more of a recreation when you're when you're taking on flesh yeah. and blood, not taking on par, um, which is an obsession that I think. People and it talks have. about the next. It's surprising how few politicians and others realise the extent that golf courses and other playing fields do this as in promote the health and happiness and the prosperity. They appear to think that anything that promotes happiness isn't evil and should be taxed out of existence, which is we can kind of park that to the side a little bit. But there's a big move in Sydney to chop up all the public golf courses and turn them into whatever they want to turn them into without... Which is fine. If you want to chop up an eight-hole course, and you've made this point before, you'd better invest in the nine holes that's left 
to make it really good. Yeah. Don't just chop it up and wreck it. Right. If you take away three <coughs> 18 hole courses, you give us three winter parks and sweet yeah. shows to yeah. replace it. Exactly. So right. the game can flourish. Yeah. And you know, governments have an equal responsibility to golf as they do to cricket and tennis and football. Yeah. Um, but they don't see it. Just back to your point there, I really like this line here. I like to play against a sportsman who never grouses about his own bad luck. He's unstinting in praise where praise is due, but at the same time is sufficiently human to take an unholy joy in your misfortunes. Yeah. There's some fun in beating an opponent of that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is wonderful, isn't it? That's, uh, that really sort of nails it, uh, nails it there. Um, Again, I, you I know, the, people talk about, well, golf's too hard. People aren't taking golf up because it's too hard. The elusiveness of golf is sufficient to ensure it's a bowling popularity, yeah. which is what Jones talked about. The, you know, about it's, the maddening difficulty of the game is its attraction. No one ever seems to master it. You imagine that you've got the secret, but it's like a bird of passage. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You know, it's like the, when people say the game's too hard, that's why people aren't playing it. This is... It's why it's such a great game because it is hard. Yeah. It's never been easy. You know, you know, if, you, you know, if you want to pick up golf and master it in 10 minutes, I mean, the, the most fun I had learning playing golf was learning it. It took me years, you know, it took me, I mean, we're all, it's always competent, but <clears throat> I had great fun shooting when I was, breaking 100 was a big deal. And learning to play competently is, and it's, that's why it's a great game because it is difficult. And arguably, as you made a point before, it's never, it's never been easier to play with the modern equipment. The game's never been easier. And yet, the numbers say, that the game is shrinking. And people complain that it's never been harder, yet it's never been easier. Yeah. yeah. You know, imagine playing with Hickory Sharps and the stuff he was playing with. Oh, wow. that, was, that was a hard game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Almost too hard. That is a game that you might give up because yeah. it's too hard and you could legitimately have done that. Um, but to mm. close, I would urge anybody with any interest in golf, be it the business of the game, the course of the game, the playing of the game, no matter what area of the game interests you, this book has something for you, doesn't it? Yep. It touches on everything and with a common sense logically argued position for the improvement yeah. and betterment of the game. Which is why it's the most important book in the game. <laughs> why it's more important now than when it was written. I think I'd have to, having read it now, I think I'd absolutely have to. You're absolutely right. I should have read this years ago when you told me. Well, I love this book. and As I said, I think it was written with a certain purpose in mind. I don't think it was necessarily meant to be Alistair McKenzie's magnum opus. I think it was at a time in his life when he was spending a lot of time in America and he expected to live for another 20 years and do a lot more golf courses. And he was trying to find a way to... like He, through enormous number of years of experience and thinking about these things, he had uh, these sets of principles and things which he derived from the old course and he was looking for a way to replicate that in inland golf because he recognised that golf had grown in popularity to the extent that you couldn't play it on Lynxland exclusively anymore. So how do you find Lynxland in other places? And, and and that's kind of the motivation for the book. But unwittingly, it's it's become uh, a blueprint for, for golf as it is now um, because we continue to play golf on inland venues. That's that's really the only option for, for most golfers. So that, I think that's what makes it as applicable now as it always was because that's, that's what golf is these days. Um, I suppose a bit like golf itself, plays. the questions haven't really changed, have they, no. in golf? And they're still as interesting as that because there no. are no real answers in golf. I don't think we'll ever get there with, uh, with the game and everything else that surrounds us. Well, we'll keep campaigning and doing fantastic book. Recommended to everybody. Mike Clayton, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy it. That was good fun. having a chat to you about the <laughs> <laughs>